but the, that's why they never encounter each other is because they they all send out this loud sound to to broadcast where they are. This is way more interesting than the news. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what are they called again, Tyler? Is, which which so, make of lizard? Uh, to, toke geckos. Toke geckos. Colorful cool. ones, the rainbow colors. Yeah, are, are they're, they gay? They're huge. They're they're. They have huge, big, round eyes. They're super slow-moving, ordinarily. Mm-hmm. And so they feed on mosquitoes and flies. Yeah, they oh, eat. Wow. They eat pretty much anything. I've e- they can get. I've seen one eat a small baby bird one time. Oh wow, savage! Okay. Uh, Tyler, I yeah. actually have uh, some feedback regarding this. That you being discriminated. I was part of a room that Cal started up, and he has ha- more hair than most of us, and he didn't get the clippity clippy. Okay. Oh, don't get him started. <laughs> <laughs> we thought we were going to have a peaceful morning. No clips. Why no clips? Hold on one sec. I got I the multi. Evan, do you have? I've seen it in other rooms, yeah. No, but but do you have? Are you? That means are you able to have clip rooms, or you need someone? I don't. Else I don't eat? create rooms. Yeah, I'm in other rooms. Oh, okay, great. So you don't. <laughs> okay. Are we ready? Just give oh, me two. Oh, we have two minutes past the part of the out. I know. I know. I just have to give me one second. I have to. I have to do oh, something yeah, here. Okay. Yeah. Since he's busy with other things, uh, the, regarding the documents that have been leaked, the the the. the before the weekend now in, in at large and have hit the papers by a broadside today, I can say that we have been diving through the documents now and we find that some of the documents in the, the new leak uh, or major leaks uh, is quite old. There are actually both Panama and, and other documents in the hive of information. What we also have found is that some of the documents somewhere during the trip to the new release has been edited, deleted, or modified. And they have modified them in such a way that some sentences have been changed, uh, people have been removed, names have been changed in documents. So uh, this is might be gaslighting, so they want to draw the attention away to other things in the documents, or they're trying to hide something and didn't know that the documents already were available on Darknet. You are done speaking. So mm. let's see if Tyler is back on surface. Yeah, well, give me one more minute. <laughs> um, I can I can uh, go with the the, the Ethiopian hot um, news. Um, the new government is uh, so warning today. There is a big a big inauguration ceremony. A lot of African leaders, like prime ministers and presidents, are in attendance, and they are all speaking. Uh, Buhari was speaking when I left for, from lunch. And uh, yeah, the Prime Minister Abi just got um, five New Year's, five uh, years uh, mandate. Some are calling it second term, but it's, I think, first term because the first one, he wasn't elected. He was appointed because the former Prime Minister resigned. So that's, uh, oh. that's, the, that's very, the news on the ground. Very similar to Japan then. Uh, J- Tyler, can I go on to the uh, hottest news in Japan now? Sure. Great. Okay, so I'll just read this since Stefan is here in case she needs to jump off. So I'll start with this first. So Kishida takes office as Japan Prime Minister today and eyes the uh, general election uh, at the end of the month. 
So uh, uh, Fumio Kishida took office as Japanese Prime Minister, forming a cabinet that will seek to keep COVID-19 under control while reviving a battered economy as he looks to appeal to voter, uh, voters heading into an upcoming general election in less than a month. I have invited someone who is very familiar with geopolitics in this region. Stefan, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Yep. Yep. Can you go okay. on to give us some comments on that? Because I, I didn't really follow the uh, politics in Japan. Thank you. Oh, that's all right. So thanks, Cheryl, for the invitation. So um, I'm speaking from the position of, uh, I guess, uh, an observer of Japan. I, I live and work in Japan and teach uh, foreign policy and domestic politics. So just to give you, in, in a nutshell, um, I think the uh, election of uh, Prime Minister Kishida as uh, Prime Minister of Japan uh, really stresses continuity in foreign policy. And we see that, that he hasn't changed the Minister of Defense. So the Minister of Defense will be uh, Kishinoburu, as well as the Foreign Minister, uh, Foreign Minister Motegi, will continue in that position. And this is to stress continuity in you know, promoting the so-called Indo-Pacific vision that Japan has, focusing on a rules-based region. So what does that mean for foreign policy? It means on issues like Taiwan, that Japan, or Japan will continue to uh, promote uh, the status quo, peace and stability across the Taiwan Straits. What does it mean for China? It means uh, an assertive position towards China, but at the same time uh, to continue to find opportunities to cooperate with China on infrastructure connectivity, probably climate change. Uh, but um, again, this relationship is going to become increasingly complicated and the new prime minister is going to have to thread that needle. Um, thinking about the Korean Peninsula, uh, Prime Minister Kishida was one of the uh, key players that um, signed the 2015 Comfort Women Agreement, and um, he's seen as somebody that was is uh, a middle of the ground, uh, an honest broker in terms of bilateral relations. It may push South Korean uh, Japan relations in a more positive direction, uh, especially if there is a new government elected in um, Seoul in March 2023. Uh, the domestic front. Um, Kishida is going to focus on, of course, COVID-19 uh, pandemic recovery, uh, reducing the social economic gaps that exist in Japan, uh, digitization, uh, making Japan even more digitized, and uh, trying to strengthen the economy um, in general by working with like-minded countries like uh, the United States, Australia, uh, India, and investing more in uh, Southeast Asian countries, uh, such as Vietnam and Singapore, Malaysia and Indonesia. So that's kind of a, uh, a macro perspective, but I'm willing to answer any questions that you have. Okay, okay. give me two more seconds, please. Uh... <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Yeah, give Tyler two more seconds. Uh, in the meantime, um, uh, Stephen do hold rooms regularly on geopolitics in the Asia region. So if you're interested in this topic, do follow him so that whenever he opens rooms, you'll be informed. Are you done with the two seconds, Tyler? Mm, I know you have a lot of questions. Three more seconds. <laughs> Three more seconds, Okay. <laughs> You're still yeah, watching. you can say anything else, Stephen. Still watching, still watching the geckos. Um, <laughs> yeah. so, so there are ge there are geckos in Japan uh, as well, and um, they do have the same kind of behavior Tyler was explaining before. Um, but back to politics, I think that this uh, the um, election of Kishida is important. It's important for thinking about whether uh, Japan's going to have the revolving door of leaderships of, of prime ministers, or will there be stability moving on? And that really impacts. Um, the region 
in terms of stability, in terms of economic policy, and in terms of dealing with some of the more um, assertive behavior by uh, China and, and, and North Korea in the region. So I think it's important, and I think it's something for Canadians to watch and Americans to watch and um, for other countries to watch. Um, what does that mean if Japan has a stable leader that's in power for four or five years? And if we look at the uh, former Prime Minister, Prime Minister Abe Shinzo, his eight years in office brought a lot of global leadership um, on, the for on, on the international front, but also some real significant changes in the domestic economy in Japan, which uh, put it in a better position. Yeah, um, Stephen, to be honest, I live in Japan. I mean, to, I'm based in Tokyo for more than around 16 years now. So I, mm. I think before Abe came on board, um, you know, the, the, the Japanese prime minister changed almost every year, right? So um, how, what do you think about, because Suga also only survived about one year. So what do you think about Kishida? Do you think he'll be able to, you know, have a longer longer tenure this, like, as a prime minister? Or do you think... I don't know because nobody's going to know, right? What's going to happen to him? So the, the 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 prime minister that was just replaced, Prime Minister Suga, yeah. you know, he didn't have he didn't belong to a, a political faction, he didn't yeah. have his own political base, so it was unlikely that he would be uh, a long-term prime minister. And I think yeah. that was the intent of the former prime minister, Prime Minister Abe, and the political mm. elite was to have one year kind of. A waiting period before they could interim, interim for they before they could find uh, an individual that would be um, a sustainable uh, prime minister that would last three or four or five years or even longer. Mm. And mm -hmm. Kishida, um, you know, he has worked within the party. He used to be um, the chairman of what's called the uh, the Policy Research Council within the Liberal Democratic Party, and that's really critical for. Um, building and working with all the different political factions within the political party, um, mm -hmm. building consensus and, and finding a way to um, you know, get political capital from all these different um, stakeholders. And mm -hmm. he's had that experience. You know, he worked as uh, the longest serving prime minister under former Prime Minister Abe. He had some success. Um, mm -hmm. He's seen as a competent, um, competent leader that can build consensus and create the uh, conditions for sustained leadership. Importantly, mm. he's supported by, I think, the power brokers within the LDP. That's mm. former Prime Minister Abe um, and uh, for, uh, former Vice Minister Aso. And when we look at mm. uh, Kishida's cabinet, you know, he is, he's demonstrating that support through appointments of individuals that come from these different political factions. So mm. I think he's in for, I think he's in power for, uh, three or four years, and that's mm. good for continuity in, in mm. domestic policy and foreign policy. Definitely. Oh, by the way, um, China has been sending uh, planes or ships along the Taiwan Straits uh, quite aggressively recently. What do you view this kind of? So yes, our our, our Chinese our Chinese friends continue to, uh, uh, you know, I think. Um, increase the pressure on uh, Taiwan and try to degrade their uh, moral spirit in terms of maintaining their distinct uh, political identity and um, uh, relative independence vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. Um, I think China will continue to do this, one, because it feels pressure to unify Taiwan or at least stabilize that relationship um, 
to the buildup of the 2022 Winter Olympics. And mm -hmm. of course, in the fall of 2022 is what's called the 20th uh, Communist Party Congress. And that's where they make decisions for the next five and 10 years. And that will decide the political fate of, of the General Secretary General Xi Jinping. So they want to make sure that there's no movement on Taiwan. And that mm -hmm. means pressuring Taiwan so that it doesn't seek independence or it doesn't start to um, form uh, stronger uh, relationships with Japan or the United States or other partners. And this will continue. But at the same time, we have huge amounts of pressures coming from the United States and Japan mm -hmm. and other actors on China from the economic front to the technology front to the security front in the South China Sea, East China Sea, and other areas, which is creating a huge amount of pressure on uh, the Communist Party of China and Secretary Xi Jinping to respond, uh, to ensure that this isn't an opportunity for Taiwan to move in a more independent direction. Yeah, and more importantly, uh, the U.S. has urged China to halt provocative flybys. So that's where it gets really serious. It sure is. And if you look at the um, statement from the uh, State Department that just came out um, this morning or last night, um, that it was a very strong statement that the United States is going to back its uh, democratic friends and allies, that it's going to uh, ensure that there's peace and stability in Taiwan, and that the United States is going to continue to strengthen that relationship. It's, it's an interesting and nuanced kind of position because it's saying, hey, we're going to back Taiwan. But at the same time, it doesn't say they're shifting away from the one China policy. And I think that's kind of a, uh, a thing that we need to continue to look forward to, because I think the United States and other countries are recalibrating that one China policy that's the basis for bilateral relations with China. That doesn't mean um, accepting Taiwan as an independent state, but it means uh, not um, letting Beijing dictate how countries are engaging with Taiwan. And up to now, I think that Ch China has been uh, dictating how countries should engage with Taiwan. But I think the United States, whether it's under the former administration of the uh, Trump administration or Biden administration, is saying, no, we're no longer going to let China dictate how we engage with Taiwan, but we're going to still keep the one China policy. It's really fascinating, and it's a, a needle to thread. So uh, going against China, pol uh, one China policy and everything but name, so sort of undermining it without making an explicit break, which would really create an international crisis. An explicit break, it correctly, would be an international crisis. It would push Xi Jinping into a box. He would likely uh, be unable to um, withstand the domestic pressure, the nationalist pressure, uh, to ensure that Taiwan doesn't uh, pursue a path of independence. And it would probably lead to uh, cross-strait tensions, uh, potentially a military clash, and this could spiral into a regional or global crisis, as you mentioned. Um, but I don't, again, see um, the United States pursuing an in, a pro-independence policy vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, but I think they want to stop um, China from dictating how they engage with Taiwan. Um, whether it's at the grassroots level or, for example, including Taiwan in the World Health Organization or even including Taiwan in the Comprehensive, Progressive and Trans-Pacific Partnership. And all of this is extremely sensitive and it tramples upon chi uh, China's core interests. But I think the lesson learned from many countries is that it's time to start uh, uh, charting their own route vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan and ensure that 
Beijing is not dictating the conditions for uh, bilateral relations with China, but uh, it also engaging with um, political entities like Taiwan. Stephen, I have another question from the audience, uh, Carl. Sure. Uh, how has the constantly changing political hate affected tech regulation, and uh, how might this latest development change things in terms uh, of so technology? I just want to clarify that. So what we're seeing is um, Taiwan is a critical part of the uh, technology supply chain in the region. That's right. So the Ta Taiwanese semiconductor company produces those super sensitive semiconductors that go in our jet fighters, our Apple phones, our, um, you know, our, our Toyota car, our Toyota and Honda cars. So it's a really, really critical player. And what we're seeing is the United States and Japan and other countries um, trying to reconfigure the technological and sensitive uh, technology supply chains such that they are secure, so that they, such that they provide a steady supply of these uh, semiconductors. And they're doing this through a, a couple different um, uh, routes. One is regu regulation, changing regulations. Uh, two is um, ensuring that these technologies that are dual use, that they can be used for you know, cars just as much as military equipment, are not... Um, accessible to uh, the Chinese. And then three is re relocating some of these uh, production facilities to um, trusted or safe and like-minded countries. And this is going to continue to be the process. This is not decoupling from China completely. It's selective diversification of sensitive technologies uh, into spheres of, of trusted like-minded countries. And this will continue. It's going to be supported by uh, the United States and Japan bilaterally. It's going to be supported by um, groups like the Quad, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue. And I think growingly there's going to be more buy-in from European countries uh, as well because these technologies are sensitive. Uh, they're kind of the avant-garde technologies that keep our economy secure and, and keep us modern. But again, there's concerns about how these can be used uh, as dual use and help China leapfrog um, in terms of development. And it, it's a growing concern. Uh, isn't the underlying technology actually developed by a Dutch company? So the fabrication happens in Taiwan, but the underlying uh, machines that make that fabrication possible is actually uh, home or situated in Europe, right? No, I think you're talking about ASML. They are just one of the many That's machines right. that... Uh, it's just one of the many machines that uh, is required in the semiconductor uh, fab. Yeah. No, I thought ASML... It's, a, it's, it's was an important one. I thought ASML was a partnership of over 200 companies that make the technology possible. Uh, not, no, no, they are one of the companies, yeah, one of the yeah, important I, ones. Yeah. I, I, I'm, on the same, um, I'm in the same boat as, as Cheryl on this. It's one of the companies that are involved in the uh, semiconductor, semiconductor manufacturing um, uh, process, and an important one. But again, I think that these are seen as... Uh, because ultimately, these are located in Taiwan. They're located in uh, part of the world that could be disrupted very, very quickly in some kind of uh, cross-strait um, crisis. And that Japan and others are, are actively thinking about how they can ensure that this sensitive technology is, is secured. Because, I mean, if, it, if there is uh, a breakdown in supply chains, and we're already feeling that with the bottleneck in, in, in semiconductors coming into our economies, that if there's a, a, a critical breakdown, that this could fundamentally create uh, an economic shock to, to the region and to the world. And um, there is growing momentum. And again, if you look at 
um, Prime Minister Kishida, they've created a Ministry of Economic Security, which is going to focus on this because it's such an important issue for the Japanese economy. So if I can ask a, a silly question, what's another company if it's not TSMC and ASML? What's a, what's a third player that I could look up? There is Applied Materials. There's uh, TL, uh, Tokyo Electron, uh, TL, TEL, I think. Yeah, Tokyo Electron, I forgot the name exactly. But there's a few that's very important in the whole process, especially with those uh, higher technology ones. Okay, yeah, thank you. There's just limited number of players that are, are you know... Oh, KLA Tenko is another one too. Yeah, and... The limited number of players means that you know this kind of technology uh, really does create an opportunity for uh, global disruption if it's if there's a crisis that emerges, and this is why we see uh, countries using you know ministries of economic security to try and create a stable supply uh, for um, like-minded countries. How much how much uh, of a material concern is it? Um, to the leaders in Taiwan and Japan and elsewhere uh, that the U.S. and the EU continue to have um, uh, different forms of risks in terms of collaboration and cooperation. Is, is, that, is that part of the zeitgeist of, of their calculus now? Do you mean with different forms of cooperation with China or different forms of cooperation with Taiwan? No, no, no. Between the U.S. and the EU, the yeah. lack of consultation with the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the deal uh, that undermined the French submarine deal with Australia, and then everything that happened with, you know, undermining NATO in the last administration. How, you know, how much, how much is the lack of a united um, alliance um, or the deterioration in a united alliance affecting the calculus? Okay, so I think on the Afghan issue, uh, we. Europeans and other countries have known the United States were going to leave for at least since the Trump administration made the uh, commitment. Um, the Biden administration telegraphed this for months ahead. Uh, I think that the so-called lack of consultation uh, really is not reflected in you know the pronouncements for you know at least a year. Uh, I think the problem was, um, and I don't think there was any perfect way to get out of Afghanistan without having. Um, the optics as they were. But I, I think that the broader strategy of using those resources, divide, diverting them back to um, the real challenge, I think, f that the United States identifies, that's China, is something that in terms of strategy, in terms of, of, of um, being on the, uh, on the same page of the book, the Europeans and the United States have a similar view. In terms of the AUKUS agreement, I think it's, you know, how much of the French are upset about this? I think that there's a certain level of crocodile tears when we're thinking about this. If you go back five or six years, you know, the French um, outcompeted the Japanese and the, and the Germans with their own sub-deal with the, with the Australians. And it wasn't until the very last minute that the Australians switched from the Japanese deal to the Australian deal. And if you look into the details, um, it wasn't, you know, the nicest way that they, they outcompeted the Germans and the Japanese. Um, I mean, the, the Australians enjoyed a lot of champagne and trips to Paris, but um, my point is, is that, you know, the, the defense industry is cutthroat um, and that I don't think the French, um, uh, they may not have expected it, but in terms of undermining the, the French and U.S. relationship, I just don't think this is the case. National interests are national interests. The French have deep-seated interests in the Pacific Islands. 
They have nationals there, and that will continue to be the case. And they'll need Australia, New Zealand, Japan, United States to help secure those interests. Um, so when we look at the broad relations, the regional interests of the EU and the United States in the region um, are, they haven't fundamentally changed. Um, the question is, is uh, will the Biden administration continue to uh, focus on an alliance first, a like-minded country first approach? And I think importantly for the Europeans, they're watching, will uh, Trump come back into power or will a Trump-like figure come back into power? Will the Repub Republicans gain seats in the upcoming 2022 uh, elections? Will Biden be able to re be reelected? And I think the Europeans are really concerned about this. Canadians are concerned about this. Japanese are concerned about this. Because under the Trump administration, as you mentioned, um, Mr. Trump fundamentally uh, created huge distress and um, apprehension in the United States because of his treatment of NATO, because of his treatment of, of alliance partners, and because of his really, you know, his, his ad hoc, incoherent foreign policies on North Korea and other countries. Um, and I think that the concern is less about um, the United States, uh, if there's continuity in the Biden administration beyond this next three years, um, and there's more concern about what's happening in the domestic politics in the United States. Thank you, Stefan. So yeah, I you back? Yep. Welcome back. Thanks. Um, what, what, are, what do you think is the big issue uh, in Japan at the moment politically? I guess uh, maybe that's relevant to the election. And is there something interesting happening in, in Japan in terms of a big domestic issue that the outside world isn't privy to? So I think like every economy, um, there's uncertainty about COVID-19 and what's going to happen over the next six months, year, two years in terms of the economy opening up. Um, how, will, how, well, how will the COVID-19 health pandemic um, uh, evolve into you know, other problems. And I think what Japan is concerned about and other countries are concerned about is growing social economic inequality associated with the pandemic, the long-term impact on civil society, on trust, on healthcare institutions, and how this will affect, um, you know, international businesses. Um, so right now, it's really difficult to come back into Japan unless you have a, a, a business visa or a permanent residency. Um, this creates huge challenges in terms of Japanese businesses going abroad, but also um, businesses coming into Japan and doing businesses. So I think economic recovery, dealing with social economic inequality, and you know, what is the post-COVID-19 pandemic landscape going to be like? Um, and I think this is the priority for uh, the government. This is what the priority of the citizens are. And, you know, it's not all this other stuff that you read in the newspapers like Yaskini Shrine or Comfort Women or Constitutional Change or whether the emperor can be a female or a male. It's all about those, you know, um, meat and potato issues or in the case of Japan, you know, sushi and okonomiyaki issues. And, um, <laughs> I think you get that if you get Japanese. Yeah. Food. But my point is, is that... Zen Zen. <laughs> Tyler loves Japan, by the way. He used to live in Japan. Oh, great. So you get it then. Yeah. But, you know, it's all about 
what is the landscape moving forward? And I, uh, I think that's really much the same in most countries, is that the pandemic has deeply impacted us in ways that are not just economic, not just health, but I think they've under, undermined um, a lot of trust in our societies, uh, how we think about health, how we think about our governments. And that is the big issue that I think the Japanese government needs to fix um, and many other governments need to think about. You know, Stefan, I think Japan has been quite strict regarding the travel ban and closing the, the border. Do you think them, do you, do you see them opening up soon? And also, we just read an article that Japan is, of course, shortage of foreign, like, the, uh, shortage of talents, especially the the technology aspect. Um, they are looking for AI, AI people, right? So do you think that they will look at these people from inside or they, are, they will allow, like, try to relax their uh, you know, uh, immigration ah. policy to allow more people to come in? So what we're going to see is there's an election. The, the, the prime minister has been selected, and he's called an election for the end of the month on October 31st. Um, and based, I don't think there'll be any change in the uh, movement or uh, you know, accessibility to Japan until that election is decided, depending on the mandate that uh, the... I, I, I'm confident um, Prime Minister Kishida will be elected as Prime Minister and the LDP will be uh, continue in power. Um, the question is, what is the mandate? You know, will they strengthen their position or how much, uh, what would be the relative weakening of positions? Now, if there's a relatively weakening of positions, then I think there's going to be an extended period where Japan continues to be closed. If they you know, keep the current number or increase their position, then I think that the Kishida government will be, or Kishida administration will be better placed to take a more um, aggressive or, uh, I guess, proactive approach to um, opening up Japan. What, where, where will they open up? Low-skilled service sector, they need people. They need people making, uh, you know, those rice balls, onigiri. They need people working in the service sector at the McDonald's and the 7-Elevens and the family marts. Um, and they need workers in the automobile um, sector, um, but they also need those highly skilled individuals, whether it's um, the, those specialists in AI or IT or augmented intelligence or anything with regards to the digital economy. So I think that Japan will have a selective uh, opening up of the economy for migrants, but it will all depend on the direction of the COVID pandemic moving forward. And if you watch Australia and you watch Singapore and other countries that have, you know, 80% or, you know, have pretty good vaccination levels, they still have a corona problem. Uh, and that as long as the corona pro we don't find ways to coexist with the co corona problem, that um, I don't think we're going to see the same movement of people in and out of countries, including Japan, as we did pre-pandemic. Is there, uh, we got to get into the headlines here, but uh, every time I... I, these days don't get over as much as I'd like, but um, I guess it was two years ago. I was there right before COVID. And I, actually, I was planning to go uh, during, well, yeah, I had a plan to go during COVID. The, the, is there a social trend that's developing that you've seen? Uh, and I ask in the context that, for example, Japan was one of the first where young ladies were not getting married and dating kind of was stopping and that these kinds of social evolution trends uh, tend to start there very early and then spread uh, beyond there. Um, I realize it might not be 
your wheelhouse, but uh, the the kind of yeah sociological human you know human human like social trends that if if you get what I'm saying. I do. Uh, it's a great question, Tyler. So, um, for all of the people on the call, there used to be a, a trend called hikikomori. Or <laughs> yeah, sonotori, no? Yeah, sonotori. Uh, those <laughs> that are s- socially withdrawn. Exactly there right. Gro- there was a growing trend because of the lack of employment. I think the, um, you know, people being too accommodative of this kind of behavior. And I think in some ways, the corona crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic has exasperated this already inward-looking side of uh, young men in that, you know, they were stuck in their houses, they couldn't go out and meet girls, they couldn't um, do what normal young people do. And I think that this will impact marriage rates and, again, uh, population um, growth in Japan. And this will impact consumption, it will impact economy. And this goes back to, again, I think uh, Prime Minister Kishida's view that um, social economic inequality, economic opportunity, um, you know, stable, um, stable, uh, well-paying jobs are critical to Japan's um, economic prosperity, um, but it's economic sustainability, right? If people aren't getting married, they're not having kids, society becomes less healthy. Um, and what I mean by that, if you look at uh, the statistics, People that are married, they live longer, they make more money, they have better education. Um, all of these uh, aggregate factors contribute to uh, stronger, more sustainable economies. Um, and I, I'm not making any comments, I think, whether it's uh, LGBT issues, um, people are, it, uh, under the LGBT category have children or adopt children, it's the same. Um, it's those intact families that make economy sustainable and this is a big concern tyler that yeah if we have more socially withdrawn people right and it's exasperated by the COVID 19 pandemic what does this mean for sustainability right and then growth in Japan? You, you no doubt you're familiar with this week or the past week or two china's kind of seeming to want to preemptively nip that potential phenomena in the bud by with this video game banning where they don't want people to get isolated and withdrawn and uh there seems to be, they seem to be also aware now more focused on their declining birth rate and, and trying to do everything to address it. And I, I imagine if, if that trend were to become much more of a recognizable, termified uh, phenomena in China, they, they would do what whatever they need to do to reverse it, where Japan just sort of r- recognizes it as a kind of Japanese characteristic, but like, as if like... You know, oh, yeah, this is just how we are. So, Tyler, this is a great point. And if you look at trends in China over the past year and a half, three years ago, they had, they changed the one China policy to two China, they, or two, China, two kid policy. They've changed it to allow for three kids, but people don't want the kids because it's so expensive. Right. And the government now has taken been proactive in trying to make Chinese society less competitive. Um, so that's banning private schools um, and forcing uh taking away the, the right to for kids to play video games. Um, but they're also making it increasingly difficult for LGBT uh, people to be represented in, right. in, in Chinese society because they want to focus on traditional families, right. uh, traditional values to create sustainable um, yeah. growth right. and to think about how, you know, 
children take care of their parents because they're going to come to a population crunch in the next five or ten years. Um, and you know, the, it's called the four to one problem: right. four grandparents for two children, uh, two children for one child. And this is coming. And the Chinese government is saying, "Yep, traditional families is the way that is one way that they can deal with this." And you're correct; the Japanese um, don't think like this. They can't think like this. You know, it's a liberal, a liberal democratic society, um, and they don't have the tools to their society in the same way as the Chinese would. But also, so what about? Well, I think sorry, the, the, ja the Japanese might be a little fortunate in that the they acquired generational wealth a little earlier than China did. So the, there isn't quite the incredibly urgent impetus to like make sure that there's uh, breadwinners in the younger generation. Like the, the Japanese who are aging generally are financially not like where the aging Chinese are in terms of uh, needing their children to support them. And that's another great comparison. And I think if you do the, the, the groundwork and a more granular look at where Japan was in the 1980s, which I think is the comparable point towards where China is today. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the boom, yeah. Broad, the broad economic growth and development of, of human capital, of that software, was extremely high in the 1980s. Where in the Chinese context, um, I think that there's pockets of really high um, human capital development, but broadly over a country of 1.4 billion people, you know, the... Um, um, average GDP or, or, or GDP per person is maybe 10,000 or 9,000 US dollars, where Japan in the 1980s was something like 40,000 or 45,000. So it's not comparable. Right. And this creates huge challenges for China moving forward as that demographic crunch comes because, you know, Japan got rich before all this happened. Right. Where China has not gotten broadly rich right uh, before the demographic crunch is is starting to accelerate yeah. but but if i may uh, uh, pose a counterpoint what about the uh, women's perspective that women if they want to have children they also want to spend time with their children fathers as well right and if we live in an economy that is so competitive and if we have something like the pandora papers where you know a third of the world's wealth is locked up in bank vaults that are inaccessible to tax revenues, I don't see that actually changing the mindset of anyone. I feel like people will not want to have children because of the pressures of, hey, I work all day, I slave away, and I barely see my children. I barely afford to give them an opportunity, the same kind of opportunity that I had. So, EO, for full transparency, all my money is in being, I, I pay a lot of taxes. <laughs> but uh, to your point, um, I completely agree. And this is why I think, you know, South Korea, um, Japan, China, uh, growingly Hong Kong and Singapore all have these same problems with one child families um, or no child families is that um, the pressure to, to work long hours, there's commuting times in these societies, uh, the cost of putting children through these competitive education systems really has um, struck home for many and I think they've said well no longer do we want to keep running on the hamster wheel and not going anywhere that we're going to make different choices and that means not 
creating families or having smaller families. Um, and this is such a huge weight on the economies moving forward. You know, Japan in 2050 will probably be 25 million people smaller. South Korea will probably be a third smaller. Uh, China will probably, its population will start shrinking. And it'll be increasingly dominated by an elderly population. So how do they work with this? How do they create economic sustainability? Is such an open question, right? Um, because these societies are, are not exactly known for being welcoming to immigrants um, and uh, you know, integrating people into their societies and, and recognizing diversity. So how are they going to manage these crises, as you correctly mentioned, and the inability of the economic systems to offer uh, a work-life balance that allows for family? And none of these societies have been able to find the, the magic bullet to deal with this. I, I'm, one thing I would look for, and we saw the first headline of it, uh, and it said South Koreans uh, going out into the countryside for long weekends or whatnot. I suspect, and I think it'll happen in Japan first, where these kind of social trends tend to occur there uh, kind of pre before elsewhere, where it, there was for the past, you know, many years, decades even, people dove into the cities. They moved away from the farms and moved into the cities and very most recently maybe in China in a major, major way. And then, and as you say, like in Hong Kong, it's just unaffordable to, I mean, the size of the apartment you have, you can't have a kid in the, those tiny apartments in Hong Kong generally and Tokyo as well. The apartments are notoriously quite small. And I think what's going to happen is there will be, Maybe as a result of COVID, to some degree, people will start saying, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to move back out into the countryside, get a piece of land, grow my own food, have a, a more traditional, and by traditional, I mean 50 to 100 years ago, lifestyle, which is kind of a whole change of values of this, you know, past modernization, you know, inner city jumping thing. And I think it will might even be led by the folks who actually did well in the in the inner cities in the past 20 years. Uh, and I'm I'm kind of tooting my own horn here. I mean, this is more or less exactly what I did, which was, you know, worked in the city, got my bag and then ran out the door. And built, now I'm, you know, out here in, in, you know, doing the farm thing and loving it. And I think uh, I think this is going to become a thing. And I think the that Japan will be one of the first to potentially do this because I've already seen the, the the folks that are my age in Japan are already thinking, you know, I don't know, you know, the whole salary man thing. I don't know as long as I can get enough and I can have, you know, by the way, just the recognition of growing one's own food and the healthiness of that. And, you know, knowing that it's not been used with uh, pesticides and knowing that it's so fresh. And so there's a real recognition of the value of that now that we didn't have 10, 20 years ago. Um, and so our values are changing a little bit and the, and the ability to have a family and be with them through the day. And there's a record, more of a recognition of that now as well. And it's, it's so kind of along those lines. So I think that's a, that's a great point. And I think when we look at, uh, and I'm just going to speak about Japan and Korea, Yeah. but you know, the best universities, the Enrollment isn't decreasing in these these best universities, whether it's Tokyo University or Seoul University or 
or Korea yeah. University or Waseda University. That means that there's a group of a segment of of the populations that continue to believe in the social economic model that understand the connection between first tier or the first tier institutions and being employed by first tier businesses, those blue chip companies, um, or entering the you know the the halls of power in those societies. I don't see those drivers changing. Yeah, I see them continue to be really important at the top tier. Yeah, where we're seeing, I think this, the situation you've described is people have kind of given up on that. They feel that they can't compete in the system, so they want to have a, a different life, uh, a work-life balance. And as you mentioned, they go to the countryside and they try to find some sustainable ways to, um, you know, to to have a family and to, um, you know as you said, you know, grow organic food, maybe wear organic clothes, and, you know, just escape the rat race mm -hmm. uh, of what's in these societies. But I don't think it's a critical mass yet. And right. I don't think, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think it's, yeah, I, I think it's just, just, just starting. Yeah, it's, it's starting, but it, it won't transform society because these are people that are in will be in a, a marginal economic position yeah and that's a, it's sad but i think it's true um in the case of these very hierarchical societies that prioritize you know um joining the elite through joining the elite institutions yeah but i think the things like starlink could help with this the uh now being able to have fast internet way out in the middle of nowhere um I'm trying to think of other complement. Well, the fact that our phones and, and the, we're becoming more digitized, so we are able to kind of be more remote and still be part of society, as I'm calling you from a very remote island in, in Thailand. You know, so it's like the uh, yeah, it's going to enable enable to think more creatively about their opportunities. Uh, to I agree with you completely, um, and I think the pandemic has exposed. Uh, those people that were able to thrive in the pandemic because they could use technology and they could, you know, you could work from Thailand or, you know, this week I, I'm, I'm in Canada, but last week I was in Tokyo um, and I'm using all these technologies to, to, to work, right? But in the Japanese context, I assume this is in many places, you know, they had many problems just, for example, even having online education or you know, being in a small apartment and the dad's home, the mom's home, the kids are trying to do online education at the top of the pandemic. Um, the ability for all people to negotiate this kind of new, you know, wireless and Wi-Fi work world is not equal. And I think that's an area that um, I think uh, Cheryl mentioned in her question: What is the priorities for the government? Is to create more um, digital equality, so that we can all you know work from home work from home more, have more opportunities to, uh, for uh, work-life balance. And this is going to take a lot of investment in infrastructure, um, lit literacy and how to use these technologies, and more flexibility by ed education institution, educational institutions, as well as businesses to allow for that. Yep. Okay. Thank you for sharing. You know, welcome, and by the way, welcome to uh, our tech news around the world here. Um, we're going to jump into the headlines, the biggest, most popular headlines in tech, as we do every day, twice a day. And um, the biggest headline at this very moment is the 
60 Minutes interview that happened uh, yesterday, Sunday evening, as they always do in America each week. And this week was a very special one that got a lot of people excited because it was the special guest interview was the Wall Street Journal's uh, Facebook whistleblower. And who essentially says that Facebook is misleading the public on progress against hate speech, mis- mis- against hate speech, misinformation, and more. That's the headline from CNBC News, and or CBS News, and CBS is the host of the, the is the network that hosts the sixty Minutes show. The New York Times headline says whistleblower says Facebook chooses profits over safety. And uh, the the special guest interviewer, uh, whose name is Frances Haugen, uh, on her own website says, Frances Haugen is an advocate for public oversight of social media. And she tells the story of how she had worked at Google and uh, Pinterest and then was decided to join Facebook because they were having a team all about combating misinformation on Facebook. And she had a close friend who had become a conspiracy theorist due to what she believes too much rabbit holing on Facebook. And so she thought she could help address an important problem that she had experienced firsthand, which was a friend who joined the tinfoil hat club and thought that was perhaps a noble use of her time. So she went there. She was the product manager for this team on misinformation. And then Facebook, after, you know, she had spent a year on that, said, well, you know, thank you very much for that. We're going to wind that down. And they kind of shut that down. And then she went on to work on the counterterrorism team. And then she realized uh, Facebook wasn't actually interested in fixing the problem that she it was her job to kind of help point out and she thought oh boy you 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 tricked me into under false pretenses you know here to join this team and to help address this problem that i think is a real problem and i've shown you that it is a real problem and you're not taking it seriously you're putting profits before people and that's not what i signed up for and so she said she stayed an extra month after she realized she didn't want to stay anymore specifically to collect all of the files that she's now leaking. And uh, and now she's done her first interview. She will tomorrow do a Senate hearing. So that's the hot story within the tech world at the moment. Rosha Tory right here. 60 minutes one day, Senate hearing the next. I mean, this is intense. Well, I, I'm curious to know how much how dramatic this whole episode can turn into and if she can get herself a book deal or a movie deal. And um, she says she, one really interesting detail that she put uh, into the press was that she knew Facebook was watching her in her final month while she's accessing all of these documents. And so her very last day, she typed into the search bar of her search history because she knew eventually she's going to be found out uh, and that they're going to look at her search history. So her last search query on her last day was, uh, I love Facebook. I don't hate Facebook. I want to fix it. And so she's got a, uh, an incredible amount of 
um, yeah, rather rather American <laughs> kind of grandiose uh, level of optimism and her abilities to sing- singularly fix Facebook as one of a hundred thousand person team. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of people that Google hired for like, hey, AI ethics, go and fix all that for us, right? And it's like, whoops, I guess out the door was a little harder than they thought. And it's like... (laughs) Well, uh, Kyler, this is Robert. I'm actually looking at this a different way also. As a employer, the level of uh, employee tracking and screening them in and while they're there is just going to go up higher. And also more forms to sign yeah. that you can sue them later as they take stuff. Yeah, that's even been you're 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 correct. We can say you're correct because already thus far, even though the you know whistleblowing or file leaking started last week or now two weeks ago, she they've now apparently reportedly they're not really allowing people to search for documents that aren't particularly re- directly re- relevant to them where previously she was able to find documents throughout the entire organization that were relevant to meetings. She wasn't directly part of those meetings. And so now they're uh, applying more of a silo uh, type approach to all of the data so that people can't do these searches and whatnot. To me is also, Tyler, I think the companies also uh, sometimes shouldn't um, create department or hire people just to whitewash or just for PR purposes that maybe, you know, if they are genuinely trying to solve some problems that maybe this kind of, you know, huge, huge gap between the expectation of the employee and what the company actually is doing wouldn't be this big. So the whitewashing sometimes happens just to make profit or or PR purposes. They they would say, oh, we are creating this, we're doing this, but internally they're not actually doing that. Yeah, that's been one of the points made against the Google ethical AI team, which was, you know, there was so much talk about ethical AI, ethical AI, Google realized, oh shit, okay, we got to create a team just so we can say we got an ethical AI team. And that's oh, the... they were paying for the external groups. So, I mean, like, it, it's just a matter of which groups internally versus externally are, are, are coordinating. But And uh, by the way, she's yeah. got a problem, too, from a disgruntled employee perspective. Um, you know, she was working for the group that was disbanded. Mm, that kind of reeks of a disgruntled employee situation to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a good thing I that agree. Facebook keeps their nose clean and doesn't have any issues on this. <laughs> Well, especially as the leader of the team, um, that that can hurt one's ego for sure. Especially like she went in, everyone goes into a scenario like that thinking, I'm going to make a change in the world. And then when you feel like you're doing the right thing and the company, you know, I can understand why she would be. Okay, this, this would, wouldn't this... be as much an issue. Facebook recruits specifically for this. The whole tech sector does with things. One thing I say, look, this isn't going to be glamorous. Show up and just do your job. We're going to pay you a paycheck and you can go home. That, that That's one thing. But no, they recruit essentially on the change the world for the better. We're doing a mission. We're doing all those things. And then they act shocked and surprised when people actually believe the sucker, uh, like the suckers they are, essentially believe the sales pitch and the HR thing. And they actually act on it. Because it is so counterintuitive for people that are hiring on these false narratives that people actually follow through and believe the things that they're saying. So, you know, sometimes people actually act on some stuff that they basically hear. 
it's like that TechCrunch meme. So molo, we're social, mobile, local. <laughs> you know, we're going to change the world, change the world, change the world. And then it turns out that all you're doing is pushing code. So, Michael, good to see you back here on stage. I'm curious if you um, have been following this Facebook drama. And the New York Times has an article right now that says, as the Wall Street Journal's Facebook files suggest, Facebook seems to be in a slow, steady decline, evidenced by frenetic pivots, executive paranoia, and talent attrition. And so the Wall Street Journal... How much revenue did they get last quarter? Did they increase? (laughs) Well, I, I... it's you know the it's this is this is one aspect where the tech journalists can't really uh be totally transparent that they have an agenda so also how much money has their publication received from facebook how much of the career of that journalist has basically been built around getting facebook likes it's the meta part that i get really irritated around yeah, about this but stuff. when when the new york times headline says the Wall Street Journal's Facebook files suggest that Facebook seems to... I mean, you're basically retweeting your friend. This is the professional journalism version of retweeting <laughs> your, your friend. And because you want to spread, make sure everybody sees this article. I, let me, let me assure you... on Facebook, right? Yeah, but let, let me assure you, the New York Times does not normally retweet the Wall Street Journal's articles. They're normally competitors. But on this issue, and really... This is one of the very, very unique issues where the New York Times is willing to go ahead and just promote Wall Street Journal's work uh, kind of above their it's own. It's funny nobody's been mentioning that, actually. Well, they have a shared. This is one area, one very unique area where they have a very al- perfectly aligned agenda to take down Facebook. And so... To, or to, at least lower the rates, essentially, that essentially that, that they're going to basically be, be, be requiring to re- upload a videos with stuff or essentially get more ad revenue for the things that they basically negotiate in their later deal content they have later on. They're raising the price they're going to be charging them later for the advertising stuff. Fa- Facebook seems to be in a slow, steady decline, <laughs> as evidenced by frantic pivots, executive paranoia, and talent attrition. This is about as high school... Uh, you know, drama kind of <laughs> Sally sleeping with the whole football team. Have you heard? <laughs> like, it's have like... we heard anything about the genocide stuff about Facebook's <laughs> role in that, or the actual death count stuff? Yeah. Like, that's actual news. This is this is pathetic. Yeah, wouldn't it make more sense that like younger the younger generation just isn't signing up for it, and that's why there you go. No, but Annette, Annette, yes, but that's what a logical, sane, unbiased person would do, and that's a brilliant approach. Is you know, hey, I think that that Facebook actually got too big for its own good, and they just don't know how to move forward as a as a relevant kind of staple i think the same thing happened with brick and mortar stores when when uh napster came like it's like when you're a giant you don't really know how to move when when kind of this rascally little little guy relatively comparatively comes into play and starts making waves you don't really know how to move because in your head you're a giant you're a staple and you're never going away i mean myspace said that uh all the brick and mortar record stores said that 
Um, and you continue to see that even today, there's a lot of brick and mortar stores who still refuse to put any kind of ad spend on digital or even have a digital storefront. And that's going to be the big killer of their business. And I think with Facebook, their, their, their strategy has always been buy whatever's working and then bury it and then kind of make their own version of it. And the only times that they didn't do that, they were successful, which was what Instagram and, uh, I think, uh, uh, what was the other one? What's WhatsApp? And, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, Facebook just, the, it's weird to say this cause I, I don't, I don't want to say it, but I, I kind of feel like they're going to go the way of MySpace if they don't learn how to, if they don't learn how to adapt properly. And if they don't stop looking at themselves as like just this giant corporation and start looking at themselves, get back to a, a, kind of grassroots kind of deal like it sounds weird to say that but what it started out as was much better than what it is today all these this kind of all-encompassing thing there's a way to do it properly we see that with what like wechat and things like that there's a way to do it properly but facebook ain't doing it so check this out i I think one second mars i just tweeted to the tech news twitter account this new york times article that you really kind of got to see to believe Uh, this is unprecedented it's the, when you open the article, it will take you to a New York Times page and the nearly the entire page, the entire screen of your device will show the Facebook logo broken like broken glass. And then it says uh, in text, Facebook is weaker than we knew. That's the headline. The headline is Facebook is weaker than we knew. A trove of leaked documents published by The Wall Street Journal hints at a company whose best days are behind it. Now, if, th- if this isn't, you know, it trying to. Is this this is to me reeks of an agenda? To I think with the issue with the agenda is problematic because we can attribute it to to the whistleblower, Ms. Horton, uh, and but we can and we can attribute it to the New York Times, but we can also attribute it to to Facebook. So why don't we just stipulate? Yeah, yeah. That but everyone has. I want to be clear. Everyone has an agenda. Everyone has an agenda. Sure. And so the yeah, question yeah, 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 is, yeah. how do we? Everyone has no, fact? but but the New York Times would say they don't. The New York Times says no, no, no. We're news. We are the news. We're not Fox News. We're not entertainment. We're not infotainment. We're the the the. We're the record. We're the news. We're unbiased. We don't have an agenda. That's the problem. That's, That's the problem. The problem. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah, Everyone has an agenda. The, sorry to cut cut you off, Michael, but the the point is that they wouldn't admit that they have the agenda. So uh, exactly. Sorry. First no, of I agree all, with you, Tyler. First of all, you have to figure out who wrote the article. It might be an Kev, analysis. Kevin Roos, as it, 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 as opposed, which I, I believe he always takes sort of a more opinionated uh, position. And it's not the straight news of reporting just what happened. So you, what you have to do when you read the New York Times is read a whole bunch of different perspectives on the New York Times, which they have. But the other thing you have to do is read every other publication against the New York Times to see how it all balances out. I mean, the people who say that it's no longer that journalism is no longer objective and it's I don't know when this golden age of objectivity lived, but I studied journalism a lot and it never existed. What you have to do, it's your responsibility as an educated citizen to read everything. You read Wired, you read the 
uh, info, information, the information, you read the Wall Street Journal, you read everything, and then you make a decision. And hopefully that's what we can do in this room, which is why we bring different okay. perspectives and different publications. Yeah. So I would recommend we take off the table attributing motives. I mean, remember she last night said that Zuckerberg wasn't evil, that, that he, he just, he's a capitalist. He wants to make as much money as, as he wants. She didn't say this, but in the fact, that's what people get so shocked about. I'm not surprised. He wants to make as much money as he, as he can, which is what he's supposed to do under our system in a sense. And what she's saying is, if you undermine our society to a certain degree, like I saw my friend, and then the impact on the, and it, what was interesting about last night's uh, interview was the focus not on, on Instagram and kids, but on, on the, the stabilizing nature within the US and throughout the world. Remember, she said that there are countries that are much smaller, that it's not cost effective for uh, Facebook to translate and monitor hate speech. And so those countries are even in more danger. And so that's really the focus. Now, what ha the long-term impact for us uh, and people interested in technology, if we get an authoritarian government, do you really want them to start dictating like China does? So that's what, it, it doesn't mean you're anti-tech, it may mean that you're pro-tech and you want more flourishing of technology and ideas, and you don't want to go the route where the government starts dictating things. Okay, so check this out. On this issue of the New York Times's objectivity and, and agenda uh, fan-flaming, check this out. Ye was it yesterday? October 1st. So over the weekend, Brian Armstrong, the CEO of Coinbase, jumps on Twitter to do a tweet thread that really skewers the this New York Times and pops their whole fantasy bubble that they're an objective, you know, without any agendas. He calls he basically uh, proves them wrong. Literally has the receipts, proves that they have an agenda. It was really interesting. He one year ago he had this new policy uh, about uh, no political polarizing discussions at work here at Coinbase. We're focused. We have a mission. Our mission is to, you know, uh, bring decentralized finance to the world, which we think is going to have more create more positive impact on the planet than anything else. So that's that's nice if you like Black Lives Matter. And that's great if you like you want to save the dolphins and all that. But we're not going to talk about those issues at work. And we're certainly not going to turn them into arguments because we have our own mission that we're focused on. And, and if you want to join our mission, then you're in the right building. If this isn't your primary mission, go find another place to work. Life's too short. Go, go work for Black Lives Matter. Go work for Save the Dolphins. We have our own mission here. End of sentence. If you, if you want to go somewhere else, here's a ridiculously fair settlement package. It's been nice. Take care. Then the New York Times wrote a hit piece on them and projected that this is going to lead to a lack of diversification at a lack of diversity at Coinbase. So he jumps on one year later, the one year anniversary to say, it's been about one year. I'm going to tweet it right now. You can read it for yourself as I read it. His tweet thread says, it's been one year since my mission focused blog post. It wasn't easy to go through at the time, but looking back, it turned out to be one of the most positive changes I've made at Coinbase and I'd recommend it to others. We've 
have a much more aligned company now where we can focus on getting work done towards our mission. And it has allowed us to hire some of the best talent from organizations where employees are fed up with politics, infighting, and distraction. One of the biggest concerns around our stance was that it would impact our diversity numbers. Since my post a year ago, we've grown our headcount about 110% while our diversity numbers have remained the same or improved in some metrics. Several people told me this would never happen when I circulated the original draft initially or internally. It turned out that there were people from every background who want to work at a mission-focused company. What was amazing was the contrast between the news following my post and the reaction from employees and people who spoke to me in private. While the media reports were mostly negative, they were all negative. They were hit pieces, actually. And it even spawned some retaliatory and intellectually dishonest hit pieces, like the New York Times. That was a very intellectually dishonest hit piece, where they intentionally sought out former black employees of Coinbase to ask, is is this guy a racist? And is that why he's firing you? That was the New York Times piece. So where he said, that's where he's being rather uh, polite in, in his point here. While the media reports were largely, were mostly negative and even spawned some retaliatory and intellectually dishonest hit pieces, the reaction both from employees and people I spoke to in private was overwhelmingly positive. In fact, I would say it was probably the most positive reaction I've gotten from any change I've made in the history of the company, which is saying something. How could something be so negative in the press, but turn out to be so incredibly positive with every stakeholder? The only sense I can make of it is that there is a huge mismatch between people's stated and revealed preferences right now, and we're operating in an environment of virtue signaling and fear of speaking up, etc., etc. Essentially calling out the New York Times. You were wrong. You tried to hit piece me. And you were wrong. The facts, I, one year later, and I've been watching, and I've been collecting the receipts, and here we are one year later, and I'm spreading my receipts on the table, and you were fucking wrong. And I'm calling your ass out. I appreciate that he did that, too. It was necessary. Well, it's it's, it's unique. I'm not, I don't know that I've seen it done before. But his point is, yeah, I've never seen there, there's agenda-driven journalism at, 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 at publications whose names are synonymous with, you know, just given the facts. And I'll be, you know, in all fairness, you know, it, it wasn't the New York Times who, I don't think they went into this voluntarily. I think they went into this whole new era of uh, uh, this new type of news, this you know, the era of fake news, I think they went into it very begrudgingly, but I don't think they had, they, they felt they didn't have much of a choice to stay relevant in an age where Fox, right. Fox News was winning. And that must have been insanely frustrating to watch fake news win when you're doing real news, as the New York Times was for, for a large part of its history. And But to stay competitive in, in this modern era of fake news, they felt like they had to participate uh, to some degree, not not to the extent that, you know, some have. I wish there was a way to get back to true journalism too. Like, quite frankly, I, I, I really tend to not pay attention to journalism because it feels so fucking, it's not, it's not real journalism. Like it's, it's, there's nothing feeling about it. There's, there's no meat and potatoes. It's all candy. And it's just, it's, it's nonsensical at this point. I'll say, well, it's, it's, oh, sorry. No, no, no. I was just going to point out that, uh, Nikkei Japan, at least the articles we see, seem to be pretty much straight down the middle. The DW from 
Berlin still seems rather down the middle. Um, it's just we have to look more internationally than before. For uh, that's, that's sort of my little short point. Go, sorry to interrupt you. Oh, no problem. Um, so uh, it's kind of cyclical, right? Remember, we had this, uh, well, not anybody alive right now, but um, but this was the Upton Sinclair talking about yellow journalism and things like that, like muckrakers and things like that. So this has been cyclical since, I mean, since Gutenberg, where we have these people who are all trying to sell papers, they're competitive. <clears throat> and then in order to become a bit more competitive, they start getting into more florid journalism and it gets goes too far and then they crack down. This most recent, you know, foray is just because of um, Reagan um, uh, removed the, what is it called? Fair. Uh, it was the fairness doctrine, but he didn't remove it. I just went through this last night. Everyone wants to blame him. It was done by the FCC. It was done unanimously, including all the Democrats. So just, but yes, under his administration, technically. But it right. Was, and he, but he also, he puts in the, uh, the head of the FCC and he was the one who actually wanted that agenda. And what happened is you used to have to have actually fair and balanced reporting. You used to have, you used to have like people just report and then they had to give equal air to the opposing side, but not right. if the, I mean, but at, at some point, if the opposing side though, uh, if the opposing side had no credibility, they could actually say that. But now they don't like so now what they're doing is this giving like this is what happened to get Trump elected is that uh, giving airtime to an opposing side and trying to uh, to balance the two like like, you know, uh, Hillary with the emails, but Trump with all the, you know, the sexual harassment and the stealing and the tax evasion and whatever. But they tried to equate them to make it look as though it's fair and balanced. That is what gives a skewed view of the world more than anything else. Like it's it's trying to equate wrongs and rights, right? Trying to equate these two doesn't work. So um, and that's what makes people think like, well, it's just as bad. It's not just as bad. And assuming that people will be able to analyze it critically and be able to tell that one is significantly more egregious than the other, whichever side it is, right, um, is wrong. People do not think critically right now. Alexander, what do, you, what do you think about the fundamental allegation of the whistleblower is that the engagement algorithm on Facebook distorts, you know, information in, in, in the way that it does? I mean, that that was the really, really uh, assertion that she made is that it's fundamental to Facebook's business that uh, that divisiveness, you know, occurs on the platform and that, you know, certain behaviors are rewarded. Uh, I, engagement. Isn't that wasn't that her really damning or most damning allegation? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think that I think that was actually uh, that I, I found it. Well, I found it actually not unfortunately shocking. It, it, it drives engagement. Right. And this is what everybody is looking for. This is why talking heads who had to get ratings for shows um, all moved from like the McLaughlin group to, you know, the Tucker Carlson people because they needed to pull people and ratings. So when when Facebook decided to get to use their MAU, the monthly active users as their metric, that's where things went wrong. Right. Because it's not really about the quality of the engagement or or even the spend of any of those people, right? If you're just looking for engagement, period, and you're trying to maximize engagement of whatever type, the more extreme, the better. Because I, those can, are can, the people who will stay engaged. Yeah, Alexandra, could I give a um, 
uh, agree with everything you said, but but a different uh, on agree on the problem, uh, suggest a different solution. So, the problem we have is that, you know, bad news travels faster than good news. That's been throughout the entirety of civilization. Um, conflict gets more eyeballs. That's been throughout the entirety of civilization. Social media has amplified that natural human tendency. So if these um, competitors in the social media space are competing for shareholder value and profit, and one of the ways to compete is around the uh, natural amplification of a natural human behavior, the only way out of that is not to take down individual companies, but to, to have a legitimate regulatory framework that says, okay, you all can compete, but this is one thing you can't compete on. You cannot any longer compete on amplifying conflict as a way to get eyeballs on screens and uh, uh, mean uh, uh, daily uh, usage. Uh, take that out, compete on the good stuff, but we're gonna take this off your plate so you don't have to compete on that. You don't need to compete on that. And maybe it'll drop the total value of the total market, but it would provide a more level playing field by taking that amplification of conflict off the table as a competitive tool. But wouldn't that just lead to people rewording stuff so that it doesn't look like a conflict? Like we agree in principle, but 57 other things that they don't agree with. I mean, I, I think that might just um, encourage them to, uh, to, to that, that might encourage form over function changes. I think it's the fundamental metric that's the problem. When you're looking at strictly engagement and you're not looking at anything else, like those people don't have to buy anything. All they are, are numbers to show ads to. Mm -hmm. That whole model is problematic. The fundamental, yeah, I, I think I agree with that, but I will say this though. I agree with it if everyone was equally intellectual. I think that the I think that the surface change, as silly as this sounds, the surface change or how you say something in this case actually will make an impact for the average person. If I'm if my speech is intensified to get some, you know, a group of easily controllable people riled up and hating another group of people. Um, if there are laws set in place that force me to have to change my tone and change the way I say said thing, it's far less likely to get that group riled up, let alone <laughs> parts of that group won't even understand what it is that I'm saying at that point. Um, so I actually don't think it's a waste of time to force, uh, kind of force, uh, a, a different etiquette and language to be used. I mean, etiquette and language is actually, it's, it's a big part of it. It really is. Hey, I, I just want to make a point on this FCC thing because we were going through it last night. So, yes, it happened in 1987, but the final rule didn't actually change, you know, where they eliminated the power of the FCC until 2011. So you had two Democratic administrations if they wanted to put it back. There, there, there were court cases involved with this stuff as well, by the way. So there was there was a general momentum because of the growth of cable television with 500 channels, okay, and satellite TV and, and all this new media that there was a general consensus, not everybody, that you didn't need to have the government try to have to regulate this fairness doctrine because there were plenty of other, you know, there were plenty of sources of, of whatever you know, across the spectrum. So, I mean, that, I just, I mean, that those are, those are actually the facts. And by the way, all the FCC commissioners have to be confirmed by the Senate and even Reagan's nominees were confirmed by a democratic Senate. 
you know, so um, I just wanted to put some balance on that, not to be a defender of Reagan, just to say that this this idea of it, like this, this, this was like a top heavy thing. This was kind of more where society was going. Did Reagan do certain things in his own? Yeah, he fired the air traffic controllers. That's him. Okay. But the FCC was a much more balanced situation, maybe with a Republican leaning on it uh, in terms of the fairness doctrine. I should also point out the equal time rule still exists. So if it's about two candidates running against each other, they, they have to give equal time. So if, if someone's running for the U.S. Senate, you know, on, on, a, on the Democratic line, you have to give the Republican nominee equal time or vice versa. So that still does exist. And, um, and uh, I'm done speaking with that. To second Ken's point that the regulation movement in the U.S. actually took place under Jimmy Carter. He was much more conservative uh, Democrat and actually was opposed uh, in a primary when he ran for re-election by Ted Kennedy. So, yeah, it, it was already a movement happening uh, throughout the political spectrum. I was just talking about media, but you're correct, by the way. You know, Ted Kennedy was, the, and that was bipartisan, too. Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch, who couldn't really be politically more different, over two senators who deregulated the trucking industry. So, yeah, there was this general deregulation. Uh, the deregulation of the airlines came under Jimmy Carter. But I was just even just more specifically just talking about the media thing because there were also court cases involved with it. Um, it it's, it's, it's much more involved than, you know, than, than some people think it's just like Reagan wanted to get rid of it, so therefore it's gone, you know. Okay, next story from The Verge. Apple starts letting users report scammy apps from their app store listings through its report a problem button. Um, Yeah, there's a problem. We've read lots of headlines about them. There's a whole lot of scammy apps in the app store, which there shouldn't be because Apple's whole defense of its 30% tax is it keeps bad actors out of the app store, but yet it doesn't. There's a whole lot of them. And that's a big problem. And so the very fact that they are kind of conceding um, the need for others to help them police, well, should I, am I going to start getting 30, a piece of that 30% cut that Apple takes if I'm going to help them find these uh, scammy apps? They're, they're now crowdsourcing the policing of the scammy apps, which is what they're charging 30% to do. Kind of interesting. Can we hear, can we hear two fourth call them scaps? <laughs> <laughs> there could be a good name. I don't know if that's the exact, we, we could come up with something. The report, the report a problem button is back one month ago. We laid out a list of eight obvious things Apple could do to improve, to prove it puts app store users ahead of profits. And they've done one of them. Report a problem on an app. Okay, next up, also from The Verge. Amazon says that Prime members can send gifts with a phone number or email address, no physical address required, rolling out to mobile users in the continental U.S. There's currently no way to opt out of the of the new feature. Amazon's launching a new gifting feature today that will allow subscribers to send gifts without knowing the address. I kind of like it, although that could that um, no doubt this will somehow be abused. Oh, for sure. I, I mean, I like it in theory, but the scammers are going to find a way to use that for sure. Gift. Oh, give, so there's yeah. a database of where everybody lives. How could that possibly go wrong? Yeah. 
The gift givers have to be Amazon Prime members. The program is limited to the continental U.S. and it can only be used on mobile phones for the time being. Why is that? And even though Amazon has built in some safeguards, the gift giver never gets access to the recipient's mailing address. This sounds like a bad idea that is ripe for abuse by scammers, stalkers, and those who take pleasure in the online harassment of others. Here's how the new feature works. Gift giver wants to surprise recipient with a present but doesn't know the recipient's mailing address. Gift giver does, however, have the recipient's email address. Gift giver chooses the gift on his Amazon mobile app, selects the add gift recipient for easy returns options during the checkout, and will see an option to let the recipient provide their address. The giver then adds the recipient's email address. At this point, the gift giver's card isn't charged, but a hold is put on their payment card for the amount of the purchase. Recipient then gets a notice via either text message or email that there's a present from a gift giver waiting. Note that if recipient doesn't have an Amazon account, they can create one on at this point. Oh, that's clever. That's a clever way to get people to sign up for Amazon if they haven't already. You have a gift waiting. Oh, this can apply to anybody. Holy smokes. So anyone can send anyone a gift through Amazon with their email. This is just like PayPal, Tyler, and how they get people to sign up who don't uh, use right. PayPal yet. Yeah, well, it's how Facebook got everyone to sign up before yeah. saying, you know, you there's a photo of you uh, that somebody tagged. <laughs> and you you can now see what that photo is. Uh, the recipient has to have an Amazon account to accept the gift, but only the giver has to be a prime member. The recipient can click on the notice from Amazon to reveal what the gift giver sent. Then they can decide whether to decline the gift, accept the gift, but convert it to an Amazon gift card. Oh, that's clever too. You don't, you can just say, no, no, give me the money. <laughs> I don't actually want that gift. <laughs> I wonder if they tell the gift giver they took the money instead. The gift, oh, the gift giver won't be notified. Oh, even better. Or they can accept the gift. <laughs> if the recipient accepts the gift, the giver's payment card is charged. If the recipient ignores the gift notification entirely, it expires within a few days and the gift giver gets their money back. I asked Amazon if there was a mechanism for its members to opt out of this new service. There is not. Amazon's stance is that the if the recipient doesn't want the gift, they can just decline it or ignore the notification. What's to stop a troll, harasser, stalker from sending multiple gifts to a recipient just to spam them with notifications when the giver knows the recipient won't accept? Technically nothing, although the recipient could notify Amazon's customer service, which will decide what action to take. Such behavior would appear to violate Amazon's policies. Not everything Amazon sells is eligible to be a new gift, because I was just about to say, what if somebody gifts you a dildo? I mean, Amazon has all kinds uh, of... We were gonna... Tyler, um, I wish there was a certain member on stage that usually is. She he, she has received items. <laughs> But I mean, there's all kinds of crazy things that Amazon sells that nobody in their right mind would want to receive as a gift, like a fleshlight, like all kinds of like, you know, potentially offensive things. Right. 
so it says not every not everything Amazon sells is eligible for the new gift giving feature, but millions of items are. The company said the eligible items include products sold by Amazon and third party sellers on its platform. There's a clever feature. That's for- when you just accept the money, right? Like when. <laughs> when uh- <laughs> sure. Yeah, but then the problem is the person sending it to you thinks you accepted the dildo. Dildo or money? <laughs> That's the next show. <laughs> I, dildo I feel or like- dough? Dildo or dough? I feel like can't they just put like a block button on there to stop the harassment? This is this is yeah. This is this is kind of like what Christmas. happens with um with wallets with crypto wallets. Like so, you, you have a public key, and anybody can put anything in your wallet. Which uh, a lot of people um, will put uh you know whatever like their their NFT or, or their coin for their platform or whatever. This is what they what used to happen a lot. And they'll put them in their wallet and then they would say, this person owns my thing. Like this influence, this influential person, like Vitalik Buterin used to get tons and tons of things gifted to him and just put into his wallet. And then people would say, look, you can look at his wallet. Like you can see he owns my stuff too. So you should buy it too. So it's, it's this idea of having this false testimonial, I think that's really problematic aside from, you know, harassment and stuff, if they're sending stuff to you and you don't have the ability to stop it, then, you know, they're, they might go forward and just say, well, this person has my product and, uh, and, you know, this person does too. And this is, these are all happy users or whatever the hell it is. So I think it's problematic. It's really dangerous. The other thing is, um, you know, once they have your address or once they have, you know, any information, like one of the problems with the crypto wallets is that they can put in something that can track what's in your wallet. Like, so they can, mm-hmm. they can steal it. So um, I do not know if that is something that's possible here, but but for Amazon to connect a person and an address for them seems like a not great idea. Is this yeah. the part where you start saying that anything you see in my closet or in my in my household it's is not mine? It's by me. It's not mine. <laughs> Very I good. I wife. didn't endorse it. I just got it. Yeah, this swear, flashlight was gifted stuff. to Tyler. It's not mine. Why does it look so used, man? <laughs> That's terrible. Wow. Well, yeah. That I don't. We'll see how this plays out. Okay. Next one from Wired. Clearview CEO says it has collected over 10 billion images from across the web and is building ways for police to find people, including de-blurring and mask removal. Isn't that Charles? Well, Charles was a co-founder, kind of a hidden co-founder, but the New York Times did a deep dive on that and confirmed that he was. And he revealed in here recently that it looks like he might be again soon. So Wired says, Clearview AI has new tools to identify you in photos. In an interview with Wired, CEO uh, Hon Ton That said the company has scraped 10 billion photos from the web and is developing new ways to aid police into their surveillance. Clearview... By the way, normally when we read Clearview AI in the news, it's like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal and or BuzzFeed, most notably, doing takedown pieces, essentially. And a bit of a bit of fear mongering, I would say, to be fair. Uh, interesting Wired to see how how Wired will deal with this issue. It says Clearview has stoked controversy by scraping the web for photos and applying facial recognition to give police and others an unprecedented ability to peer into our lives. No, it just it doesn't let you them peer into your life. It just identifies the person in the photo. 
Okay. Moving on. Now the company's CEO wants to use AI to make Clearview's surveillance tool even more powerful. It may make it more dangerous and error-prone as well. Clearview has collected billions of photos from across websites that include Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and uses AI to identify a particular person in images. There you go. Now you're getting back to the facts here. Police and government agents have used the company's face database to help identify suspects in photos by tying them to online profiles. Dead on. The company's co-founder and CEO tells Wired that Clearview has now collected more than 10 billion images from across the web, more than three times as many as has been previously reported. CEO says the larger pool of photos means users, most often law enforcement, are more likely to find a match when searching for someone. He also claims the larger data set makes the company's tool more accurate. Clearview combined web crawling techniques, advanced advances in machine learning that have improved facial recognition and disregard for personal privacy to create a surprisingly powerful tool. The CEO demonstrated technology through a smartphone app by taking a photo of the reporter. The app produced dozens of images from numerous U.S. and international websites, each showing the correct person in images captured over more than a decade. The allure of such a tool is obvious, but so is the potential for its misuse. Clearview's actions sparked public outrage and a broader debate over expectations of privacy in an era of smartphone, social media, and AI. Critics say the company is eroding personal privacy. The ACLU sued Clearview in Illinois under a law that restricts the collection of biometric information in Illinois. The company also faces class action lawsuits in New York and California. Facebook and Twitter have demanded that Clearview stop scraping their sites. The pushback has not deterred the CEO. He says he believes most people accept or support the idea of using facial recognition to solve crimes, saying they, the people who are worried about it, they are very vocal. And that's a very good thing because I think over time we can address more and more of their concerns. He says some of Clearview's new technologies may spark further debate. CEO says it is developing new ways for police to find a person, including de-blur and mask removal tools. The first takes a blurred image and sharpens it using machine learning to envision what a clearer picture would look like. The second tries to envision the covered part of a person's face using machine learning models that fill in missing details of an image using best guesses based on statistical patterns found in other images. These capabilities could make Clearview's technology more effective or attractive, but also more problematic. It remains unclear how accurately the new techniques work, but experts say they could increase the risk that a person is wrongly identified and could exacerbate biases inherent in the system. I would ex Here's a quote. I would expect accuracy to be quite bad and even beyond accuracy without careful control over the data set and the training process, I would expect a plethora of unintended bias to creep in, says Alexander Madry, a professor of, at MIT who specializes in machine learning. Without due care, for example, the approach might make people with certain features more likely to be wrongly identified. Even if the technology works as promised, uh, the ethics of unmasking people is problematic. Think of people who masked themselves to take part in a peaceful protest and were blurred to protect their privacy. CEO says tests have found the new tools improve the accuracy of Clearview's results. Any enhanced images should be noted as such and extra care taken when evaluating results that may result from an enhanced image. The CEO says investigators already seem already sometimes modify images to help find a match. For instance, by changing the brightness or cropping out certain details, 
He says deblurring an image or removing a mask may make errors more likely, but says Clearview's results are used only to generate leads that police use in their investigations. My intention with this technology is always to have it under human control. Uh, when AI gets it wrong, it is checked by a person, which is perhaps um, obvious that this is not a, a court case. <laughs> the, a, the, the critics of this somehow mistakenly assume that this is a judge and jury and executioner in an app. It's not. <laughs> it helps you. It suggests people who might be the person you're looking for. And then you have to actually continue to do the legal case with the lawyers, with the judge, with the jury. This doesn't uh, help uh, anything except save time for the police officer at the early stages of the investigation. So it's, uh, anyhow, rather fair uh, post by The Wired, which is kind of to be expected. They're, they still have geeks who actually write the articles there. You know what it seems like that they're just expanding on, and I'm not even sure if this is really true, but from what you see in movies, when they like search the database, like put a photo in and search existing criminals, uh, and then they find, you know, matches that way. It just seems like it's kind of the same thing. No, I guess my problem with it is that eventually, I mean, the first, you know, I'm always preaching that every time we create a, a new technology, for all of us who think of all the amazing, wonderful ways it can help to fix society, there's that 5% out there figuring out how can I take advantage of this and good people for personal gain. Um, and in this particular case, if you're starting out with a blurred image and you happen to have access to the data set, you can even start targeting people if you want to. And that's a problem, a big fucking problem, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm certain Stalin uh, would have loved this type of software. But on the other side, I totally agree with you, Michael. But um, I, I'm less concerned about the the technical side of this. I'm more concerned about the interface with humans um, because uh, it, it's just going to, like Mike said, I think it's just going to embolden um, certain people to do the wrongs that they've probably always wanted to do. But I do think that there's a good side of this. If we can help find missing persons and things like that, it could be could be good. Just have to have the right oversight. Agree. Next one. Yeah, it's all about what government you work for. If you're in a government that abuses uh, technologies, of which there's many, then this is a nightmare. If you're in a country with, if you're in Ellen, how how would Norwegians feel about this, for example? Yeah, this would never happen in Norway. We're probably never going to use this. But then... Again, we, I mean, we have a phone book. I know where everyone lives. It's not a problem. <laughs> yeah, I'm moving to Norway. Well, they, have, they have a different right, system. Everyone knows everything about everybody there. So it's, yeah, might not be. Uh... So the next one is that uh, it's uh, Mark Gurman um, from Wall Street Journal, I believe says that the MacBook Pros with the M1X are coming this month and that he's giving very precise new specs about the new M1X processor, giving away the juicy bit that we're going to watch for whenever they announce their streaming event in October. But he says that the M1X uh, new MacBook Pros, the processors include eight high-performance cores, two high-efficiency cores, 16 or 32 graphics cores, 
and will launch in the next month. And then it's also expected that the AirPods 3s will also be part of that event. And Santa needs a uh, Christmas, guys. Yeah, speaking of which, Apple Watch Series 7 pre-orders start October 8th, shipping October 15th. And next up is from TechCrunch Quest Software's product called One Identity acquires One Login, a rival to Okta and Pingin sign-on and identity identity management system One Login raised a hundred million dollars series in 2019 so one identity acquires one login more consolidation is afoot in the world of cybersecurity, specifically around services to help organizations manage identity and access and let me see one login is this who i think it is it is it's an old friend of mine thomas Pedersen. i thought i recognized the name he's from denmark and uh, we used, we were uh, perhaps one of the very, very, very first customers of this, and we used it because of that issue we talked about here a couple of days ago, where when you have a former employee who leaves, and they can wreak havoc if you're not able to remove them from all of the accounts, because as a employee, you might get access to the company's YouTube account and Twitter account and Facebook account and this account and that account and this account and dozens of accounts that you lose track of over time. Right. And so when you remove them from your company, then you forgot, oh, shit, we gave Robert the password to the Instagram account. But we forgot because <laughs> it was Sarah who gave it to him and Sarah's not here anymore. And she forgot to tell that you, you see the problem. So Thomas, who's a lovely dude, um, kudos to him uh, on on selling this, and the it made it really simple because when you bring on it, we like I said, I think we were the first big employee uh, 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 user he ever had because we had, you know, we we used it in the way that he intended it, and it was like when a new employee comes on you no longer actually share the passwords to them. You just pick which services they get access to. Ding, 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 ding. You add it to their account. Okay, you get Facebook, you get Instagram, you get YouTube, you get this. Access to those accounts. You never need to know the password. Uh, you every, every time you need to log into anything, you go to his website, onelogin.com, and then you click the Facebook button, and then it logs you into the company's Facebook account. And then when you get fired, they just remove your account. For and, and along with it, every every service you had access to. And it solved a, a really important problem. So anyway, just excited for this, Thomas. That's very cool. And, and Yeah, it's actually really brilliant. It's genius. So I imagine Denmark, the Danish geek ecosystem, will be happy. He's quite well known in the the Copenhagen geek community as well. Okay, next up is uh, an ophthalmologist details using the iPhone 13 Pro's macro camera to document changes in his patient's eyes, for which he previously had a $15,000 setup. Dr. Tommy Korn recently went viral for showing how he uses the new iPhone 13 Pro macro camera capabilities to document the eyes of his patients, where previously he had to use a professional kind of specialized 
hardware that costs 15,000 bucks. Now he can do it with his, his phone. By the way, so instead yeah. of autoscope, I mean, uh, the ophthalmoscope, mm -hmm. he's using the phone? Yes. Wow. Why didn't they use that in their uh, annual keynote event to showcase the new features? <laughs> <laughs> so the next one's from CNBC. They say there are filings now that TikTok's European revenue grew 545% in the past year. So 5.4x. That's a lot of growth in one year. Um... Up from da, 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 head headcount grew to 1,294, up from 208. So the also the team size grew 5x. We got to start listening to the younger people who keep telling us that we're uncool or staying at Facebook. I like how CNBC feels the need to point out that also its losses have soared from 107 million last year to 644 million. So now they they used to lose 170 million a year. Now they're losing 644 million per year, implying that it's not one of the fastest growing businesses on the planet. I guess it's relevant, but it's uh, yeah, it's good to know how much of their investment money they're spending, how much they're burning. That is relevant when you put it in that context. Next up is Qualcomm and SSW Partners to acquire Vioneer, which makes driver assistance systems for autonomous vehicles for just this very small, cheap price of $4.5 billion. And this was the same company that uh, Magda tried to acquire and that, uh, that didn't go through. And now Qualcomm and SSW have acquired this driver assistance system. Next. I love when you hear these companies worth billions of dollars you've never heard of. It's like, <laughs> where did they come from? It's amazing. Yeah, the the but the the autonomous driving space is just unfathomable. Um, you know, the the companies who really stake out and win that horse race, who you know build the autonomous car networks or the key components, you know, because there, there's multiple suppliers that will go into autonomous vehicles. Although Tesla is a... You'll never hear them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, same with parts in your iPhone. There's a bunch of companies that you don't necessarily know all the parts makers. Same with a Tesla. There's a lot of suppliers that Tesla has that you don't know. And even if Tesla wins the... Is one of the winners of the autonomous race, there will be many. But, I mean, these are just going to be huge, 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 huge cash cows that uh, build these autonomous vehicle networks, which will remove the need for anyone to own a car. Uh, so it's going to be massive. All, all of the local transport for people and products and things in real time. The next one from Bloomberg says there's analysis that SoftBank's Vision Fund 2 is investing at twice the pace of its predecessor, the original Vision Fund, growing its portfolio five-fold in under nine months, despite fewer staff. And in fact, their CEO of the Vision Fund just stepped down. So what's going on, Tyrone? And our friend Charles has pointed out, and he wants you to remember, <laughs> does he not, that he called it first that SoftBank's 
doing some shady shizzy. And he just saying, just, just saying, saying. Uh, it's it's October 4th, and, you know, and I'm calling it yet again. Watch out. They're going to get there's a big investigation coming. There's going to be a shakedown on softening. But it's it's not unreasonable what he's proposing because uh, SoftBank Vision Fund 1, when it launched, was a billion dollar fund. And that was unprecedented. That was like, holy shit, SoftBank just won tech. Oh, my God. A billion dollar fund. Oh, my sweet Jesus. They're taking over. And now SoftBank Vision Fund 2, which I think is in the, the 5 billion category, which just makes all the other VCs look like, you know, kids on the playground. You know, like, what the hell are we doing? Uh, and SoftBank can just throw money. And buy, I mean, SoftBank, when they invest, they throw crazy money into these companies, uh, which, again... Charles points out, is this normal? No, it's not. It's unprecedented. The amount of money SoftBank throws into companies like WeWork. And that didn't turn that one didn't turn out so well. But there's plenty others where they throw money that seems suspicious, uh, unusually large amounts, suspiciously large amounts of money that they throw into some of these companies, which he his argument that he is speaking in, in code is that. Uh, SoftBank is a whole bunch of money laundering. Essentially, people have found a way to wash money where they just throw it into VCs. And SoftBank's a great one because they're such international presence where they could get Chinese and folks throwing money into SoftBank that then gets invested into American and Japanese companies and whatnot. So um, he might have a point there that um, it's, a, it's a clever new way to uh, clean up clean up some money. And that's why there's an investment. I heard a story. Yeah. I heard a story, Tyler, about a company in Japan that was acquired. I don't know the name, just because of the tax breaks. Like they didn't need the technology or the people, but literally this big conglomerate was buying companies for tax purposes and then just whatever, shutting them down. Could be I because you see a lot of that. Yeah, you could have, for example, in India, Indian car companies get, you know tax breaks that uh, ex, you know non-Indian companies do not. So you might acquire a, a domestic company in a geography or in a in a in a in a, in a tax region. They, they yeah. have that in, in the US as well in certain uh, economic um, places zones, you know yeah. where they're yeah economic zones exactly. They they have that uh, there's like in Brooklyn I know for sure exists uh, in areas where that are up and coming or need to be at least. Okay. So then Tyler, so it's, not, yes. it's not a surprise. The, um, since we're in a tech room, I just want to say Instagram is down again. And uh, I just went to see it. Apparently everyone's uh, going on Twitter to find out what's going on. Let me, let me give you the update from Thailand here. Let's see. It's down in Thailand. Yeah. I mean, here in Turkey, it's down here too. And it's everyone's going on Twitter to find out what's going on, but it's been happening. This is the fourth time that I can think of recently. So, oh, let's, let's see if Bloomberg has any kind of hot sauce on this article. Uh, Masayoshi's son has sharply accelerated the pace of his startup investments this year, quintupling the number of companies in his Vision Fund 2 portfolio in less than nine months. The founder at SoftBank has cut 115 deals this year, as two per week, according to Bloomberg's calculations based on the data released by the company. That's more than the combined number of deals of the first Vision Fund made since its start in 2017, showing 
Mr. Son, or Son San, as he's called in Japan, remains confident in his investing capability despite blunders with office sharing service we work in green yeah he's incredibly confident in his investing ability um by the way bloomberg I, I realize you're a journalist uh not every investment a tech investor does works out in fact the majority of them don't work out so even though he had one that didn't work out uh, he still has a fantastic track record by tech standards. So, of course, he's supremely confident in his investing abilities. So, <laughs> the faster pace of deal making is sure to raise questions about whether Sone is risking similar missteps. No, not really. Uh, especially as a string of high profile departures depletes top talent at the Vision Fund, seven managers. Part, managing partners have left since March of last year and last week. Deep Nashar, the sole senior managing partner, which I called the CEO, but in, in VC land, they're called the managing partner, uh, and leading authority on AI said he would depart by the end of the year. Vision Fund's track record was not great to begin with, and now they are doing more with fewer people, says Amir, senior strategist at Asymmetric Advisors, who recommends shorting SoftBank stock. Potential failure rates are bound to be higher but you can imagine Sone just throwing caution to the wind and playing the percentages. The total headcount at SoftBank Investment Advisors, which oversees both vision funds, has shrunk from about 500 people to about 400. According to a person familiar with Matter, several senior people who departed grew frustrated with Sun's overriding influence, which left them with little real authority. People familiar with Matter said the vision fund's compens compensation structure also caused tensions with executives limited to in their ability to profit from successful startups they introduced to Sun, the people said. Yeah, he's a superstar. Okay, so now we had a similar article yesterday where um, Jeff Be it was Jeff Bezos's rocket company, Blue Origin. They had a, somebody who called themselves a whistleblower, but the only whistle they were really blowing was saying they felt it was a sexist environment. Um and that they themselves wouldn't feel safe riding on the rockets, and that it was the Jeff show. Well, goddamn right it's the Jeff show. He's a fucking the world's richest person, and he's throwing his extra money into this company. How, did you sign up not thinking it was going to be the Jeff show? Did, did somebody trick you into thinking this was something other than the Jeff show? He, he shapes it like a penis. At what point did you think uh, this wasn't might not be the Jeff show. When they didn't receive the Amazon gift from the Jeff show. <laughs> so the, and then similarly with Masayoshi-san, Masa is a super high profile mega celebrity. He's the, he's the, one of the biggest characters in Japan, in Asia, in fact. Uh, how you, are you telling me you signed up to be part of team Masayoshi-san, and it's like saying I'm joining. Hey, I just joined the. What would be good? I just joined Madonna's band as a backup dancer, and I just feel like it's the Madonna show. I mean, it was just all about her every night. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did you think otherwise? Oh boy, this is common sense. Hey, face, face, Facebook and WhatsApp are down too. 
Oh, really? Yeah. Facebook, WhatsApp, and yeah, Instagram are all down. WhatsApp is also down for me. Yes. yes. They're, they're Same down. here. DNS, that's a DNS attack. Yeah, it's pretty bad. This is a global outage of all... Oh, my goodness. They're oh, taking man. that think piece. They're taking that oh, hit piece way too far. Japan, <laughs> Japan is down to... They just knocked down Facebook all together. So in a single fell swoop, we got rid of all the evils of society. They're a problem fixed. <laughs> Mark, Mark Zuckerberg is like, fuck it, y'all. I'm out. I, I, I bet you it has something to do with this Pandora stuff. And they're like, hey, you know what? We got to slow this down. It's going to have a t-shirt. Fuck around and find out. But you know what? I just got off of a messenger call. I mean, literally 15 seconds ago. So that's still up and running. Well, I love how everyone in this room is reporting real time. Talk about breaking news. It's pretty cool. Of course. That's what we so, do. So, so is this, is this That's Pegasus? That's what it's all about. Is this Pegasus related or Cambridge Analytica? What? Yeah, this is weird. Yeah, All of their properties all down globally. That's wild. Trending on Instagram. Delete Facebook. Instagram <laughs> down. <laughs> Instagram down. Great news for Clubhouse. Oh, well, yeah, maybe. Yeah, this is weird. This is really weird. What's well, going on? Tyler, last week you talked about that one button that every country should have. Maybe they all <laughs> pressed it at the same time. This is too weird. Maybe it's a really clever psyops situation to show that they're not the big bad bully they, that everyone's making them out to be. That there's, you know, they're a bunch of inept, you know, people who can't even keep a website up. This is this is like the uh, okay it's polit- kind kind of charge but it's like the day without Mexicans they did here in California you know like the oh. day without Facebook maybe they're, they're trying to teach the world oh you think it. we're so bad huh yeah. let's let's see how long you can last y'all let's see how you can survive without it let's see who needs who huh yeah uh-huh. <laughs> oh, who needs the likes fun. who needs the that's what I thought <laughs> who needs the dopamine yeah. now. <laughs> this might be a way for them to actually up the scores of the, the leaked list we had last week regarding now the, the body shaming is not longer there. So let's see mm-hmm. if the numbers go up. Exactly. Uh, All the problems are solved now. I just find it very, I always ask, why this, why now? And it's less about Facebook for me, and I'm not trying to go conspiracy theory, but every time there's a major leak of something big that touches a broad sector of, let's just say, highly influential people, unusual things tend to happen or politicians tend to do things. No, like no, right no. Right before Brexit, the, you had Cameron. You know, the, I think I figured with, it uh, out. The pen, with the pen, or maybe uh, a hacker. I a think hacker. I figured it out. I think I figured it out. I, here's what's going on. They are gonna, they're doing data right now on uh, – and they're going to find out yeah. – that more people uh, killed themselves during the blackout than when they were mm-hmm. not. And they're going to say, told you, we are a net benefit to society or so- <laughs> something along those lines. Just think if they had owned Clubhouse, we wouldn't be able to talk. Right? That is dark, man. <laughs> I see it as a potential monopoly, guys. Weren't we talking about EMPs earlier? Like maybe somebody's robbing something. On the other side of the ledger, uh, Francis Hogan uh, had 296 uh, followers uh, 16 hours ago when I said, let's see how many 
it jumps from after 60 minutes and now she has 13.5,000. Hey, hey, sorry to interrupt. Tyler, uh, Anthony Moose has something to say. And, uh, he's, already, he's, he's, he's already been invited up. Yep. See you, bud. Here we go. Hey, hey, thanks, everyone. Thanks, thanks Tyler. And um, just to uh, add to Robert, what Robert Johnson was mentioning, you know, why now, why here, and why, right? Um, and again, I'm not putting my tinfoil hat on or, you know, just really. No, no, thinking... You can feel free to put the tinfoil hat on. <laughs> feel free. <laughs> Let that well, okay, wear okay. it proudly, my friend. Well, Go ahead. Well, again, it's, it's, it's more, more of like, you know, if I'm a strategic Wall Street insider or Silicon Valley insider, right? Place myself in their shoes. And again, why? Um, so everyone knows the ETFs, QQQQ, what are they primarily traded on? NASDAQ, yep. top yep. 100s. Yep. Then, um, then you take it to next further, the FANGs, right? F-A-A-N-G-M, whatever. Yep. Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, yep. Microsoft, right? So the F and FANGs, ironically, the servers are down today. When any, If anyone knows how cloud or servers work, it's all the servers are in the middle of America. I forget which states, but they're pretty much it like is a global outage. underneath. Yeah. yeah, it's a freaking global outage. But like 80, 90% of their servers are pretty much in the middle of America, um, pretty much underneath Nebraska, Missouri, I forget, Alabama. It's it's like in the middle mm -hmm. of America, right? Mm. But um, where the markets, and you see the markets are taking a dive today. Right? The markets are bloodshed today. Um, that's concerning. Again, the F and Fangs are down. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had the Evergrande, you know, Chinese real estate properties that, you know, threw a curveball into markets. Um, is this like a sy systemic way of breaking the markets down possibly, mm -hmm. or is this a buy on the dip opportunity, you know? So, and, and to your point, Tyler and others like, Hey, you know, shows the world why, why, you know, Instagram or Facebook is that important? I mean, I'm trying to upload, I'm trying to, you know, look at, uh, who viewed my story on Instagram this morning. Um, <laughs> but, but that said, like the way I, I worked on wall street at a very young age and, um, I like trading. I like trading a lot. And the way things are going to me in this event-driven market, I believe this could shape up to be a big buy on the dip opportunity um, or this could shut up for more bloodshed. So it's interesting. And, and again, I always ask why here, why now? And I'm Anthony Moons and I'm done speaking. Okay. Yeah. The tech, tech stocks are getting killed today. They're getting mm. crushed. 7% on some of these. My Lord. How, how could Mr. Steve decline miss this one? Yeah. How, how, is your, how is your Shopify? I'm still on Shopify net net way up because it, it's gone up quite tremendously over the past, you know, year or so. But man, this is just like a a really... what did, Anthony, what's the C, C, B, CNBC... Um, take on why the markets are going are down so much today you know you know what's funny i i've stopped watching cnbc years ago after i interned for a billionaire hedge fund manager um just because if you don't know how to play the emotions on cnbc then you're screwed so um i i stopped tuning into cnbc and i only primarily rely on bloomberg okay okay so tyler i can give you like so basically you've got not this week but next week there's going to be a lot of earnings released. There'll be some this week. Yeah. So uh, some people maybe given where valuations are, want yeah. to like lighten up ahead of the news. 
you know, interest rates have been, you know, you know, moving up a bit. You've got all of the um, dissension in Washington and, and forget about the infrastructure bills. I mean, you know, we're still only maybe two weeks away from disaster with the debt ceiling. So there's a lot to be concerned about, particularly when you have markets that have been very frothy. I mean, there's this not, is nothing, also historical, like for the month of September, it's typically the worst month of, of the year. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I agree. And then if you go year over year VIX, right? VIX was at 45 last year at this time, and we're at 24. Yeah, President the, Biden is addressing the debt limit right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, live, yeah. That, that too. So we need, I think this is a buy on the dip opportunity. We need the infrastructure bill passed. This is a event-driven market. There's only maybe one 150 hedge fund managers that really pull the strings on this market. Um, I worked for a few of them. And so, yeah, if, if I place my feet in their shoes, I think an infrastructure bill is going to be passed around the corner and the debt ceiling has to be raised. So my hunch is this is going to be an end. This is, will be a buy on the dip opportunity. And there's a few people that line their interest. Maybe Mark just, again, also wants to show that, hey, you know, <laughs> our servers were down for a few hours and you guys all freaked out. <laughs> just to be clear, I'm, I'm going to just turn on CNN. Biden isn't really addressing anything other than he's complaining that the GOP won't help him. So he doesn't have a solution to the debt ceiling issue yet. It's not like he's announcing a solution. He's just venting. Okay. I feel like he's, he's putting pressure. pressure. Yeah, that's why, that's why when it's the market's coming. Get a surprise, coming. When the market's got a surprise, it's a big V-shaped recovery. Okay. I think so, it's an can introduction. I, my... I think it's an introduction to China. Welcome to China. You know, where, <clears throat> where um, your uh, internet is down and your, your access to your Facebook and gaming and everything will be down. This is, this is life in the new age. Can I put on my tin hat yes. and, and ask, and <laughs> ask that could this be the timing or, or the timing of all this? Maybe another disgruntled people or anonymous hackers or whatever after this interview or other people like, you know, could that, could that possibly be the case? That's a very interesting point. Um, after yesterday, after globally, yesterday. that would be tricky. Yeah. Unless, unless there's some kind of a coordination. I mean, like I said, it's a tin hat, but I'm just, I'm just asking. Yeah, and across all properties, mm-hmm. that, that's what's so weird about it. And also, it's like the one red too. button, right? Like the take down like everything a, everywhere. Yeah. I mean, doesn't doesn't Facebook have an on and off button? I don't know. Coordinated I, I effort right. and maybe, you know, underwire, I mean, underground wiring, whatever the, you know, main uh, feed is, they just cut that off and maybe blame it on some sort of uh, earthquake or mm-hmm. any other disaster. No. Or Mark Zuckerberg just saying, you know what, I'm taking this down and you guys can see what the world is like without everything I've built and complain about Suck it afterwards. It, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and shut this okay, woman can up. I, yeah. Can I ask it? Can I ask a question? So I just attempted to go into my financial apps um, and all of them, even though I'm normally just able to uh, log in with my face, all of them are requiring me to put in my, uh, my code, my password again. So oh, oh, know, oh. Maybe this, there is something here. Well, then wait a minute. Oh, this, this, this could get very interesting because a lot of people have connected Facebook by Facebook their Facebook connect button to a lot of third party apps. And so while Facebook's down, you won't be able to log into lots of oh my God, websites. Yes. So right. this could be a very clever way of reminding people we're not going anywhere. 
Yeah. So watch out, guys. However, I, 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 I can't challenge you to look at. Yeah. No, I just challenge. I I'm I'm saying take this opportunity and go into your. I don't know what mine is for. I think mine is for my Fisher investment account. So when you said everything was going down, I'm like, I wonder how much money I've lost in the last, you know, hour or so. <laughs> and I decided to go in. And it requires me to put in my um, my information again. So yeah, I, and but, I'm on an Apple. But just be really careful today, guys. You know, yeah, I won't be logging be, in today. A lot of this stuff can be DNS poisoning. You know, basically they're pushing you to other sites. So. You know, I mean, I, I, I'm speculating again, but this this is some of the mechanical mechanisms that are in play here, especially when a large network like this goes down. You know, the biggest, most vulnerable part is actually the domain name system because it's 80 years old or not 80. It's since it's since the 80s and like it, it's very archaic. So like that's one of the easiest ways to really cause all these to go down is to mess with the DNS system. That's the domain name system. When you type Facebook, it resolves Facebook.com into uh, the telephone number or the IP address, if you will. It's like a phone book for the internet. And when those get all screwed up, a lot of bad things can happen, especially if, you know, you're going to Fisher Investments and, you know, you might put in your credentials for what you think is Facebook because everything points to it being Facebook. But if there's this DNS poisoning that's going on right now, possibly, uh, I would be very leery. So it started. Just to rest point. I'm not that stupid to put my Fisher in, in Facebook. <laughs> I, I don't link the two. I, I have a, a little bit more of a brain. The, well, that, that's what I was just going to ask you. Did you did you ever log in through Facebook with it? Because if if that's not the case, then there's something even uh, more interesting happening there. Yeah. So, no, mm-hmm. I have never logged into my my investment account through Facebook. No, they they're kept completely separate. So the, there's an article out now that uh, the outages started at uh, 40 minutes after the hour. So it's now been 28 minutes that it's been down and all those services remain inaccessible. It's, it's, definite, it's definitely DNS. I'm looking at the DNS propagation right now and all of them are down. There's only Beijing, China, Yoga, Karta, Indonesia and Lima, Peru running right now, as well as Bursa, Turkey. Everyone else's DNS servers are down. The outages quickly started trending on Twitter as users flocked to competing social networks to check to see if other users were affected by the downtime. Humorously, the hashtag uh, delete Facebook is also trending on Twitter as the company battles continued pushback against the effects of its platform uh, on young users. While some Facebook, Instagram and WhatsApp outages only affect certain geographic regions, the services are down worldwide today. This includes the U.S., U.K., Brazil, Kuwait, and more. Yeah, that's what worldwide means, by the way. Is, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, including, yeah, Brazil's part of the world. So is Kuwait, yeah. The outages also affecting platforms and services that use Facebook login, like Niantic, creator of Pokemon Go, says that it is looking into reports of errors associated with Facebook login and will update here once we have more information. Facebook has not yet publicly commented on the ongoing outages affecting all of its services will be sure to update the story as we learn more. There is there the issue appears to be related to some sort of DNS problem affecting Facebook servers. Are Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp currently down for you? Let us know in the comments. And yep, they're just getting a beating, aren't they? Might, might it be that it's the Borg that come after them? Hey, did, did anyone watch the 60 Minutes yesterday? So Tina, who's in the audience, everyone knows Tina up here. 
she was just like bombarding me with text messages saying like, Hey, you got to watch the 60 minutes. It's going to be up in 10, 15 minutes. And fortunately I got held up. So I, I didn't watch it, but did anyone up here on stage get to watch the 60 minutes? Bits of it. I watched what CBS released as their highlights of it. Um, and we've, we've, I'm, I'm heading into office now and I'm going to, uh, dive through and watch the entire thing because it's definitely related to whatever happened yesterday. Yeah. You have discussed earlier, right? Yeah. She the wrote a blog post about it herself, uh, which I've read and she's been tweeting. So that, yeah. You can just type 157.240.194.35. That should bring up Facebook. Oh, to get around the DNS. Yeah. Let me see if that works. <sighs> Hey Tyler, yes. you, 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 this no. is Robert, real quick. Yeah. Looking at the market, yep. you got um, Facebook down over five percent. You have DocuSign down about five percent. You got, um, you got a number of these things down four to five percent. So yeah. it's Now, granted, I, I'm not saying anybody do an emotional move. So, but it's just an FYI. This is kind of interesting. Yes, yeah, pretty. It's rough out there today. These are not particularly big moves. I think that, you know, you have to realize that the market's gone up a lot. You're going to get some retracement. You've got a lot of negative headwinds. This is nothing. I remember when the New York Stock Exchange, when the Dow went down 22% in a single day. So everybody gets upset about Stop 5%. bring back those days, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying 5% moves in the kind of world we live in today. You should expect them. Yeah. Yeah, but is anything up? Bitcoin, uh, maybe? Let me check. I show... The commodities are down, too. Like, gold is down. Gold has been down. Uh, gold, yeah, it's, it's, gold ETF is yeah, up. Definitely. It's an entire correction. And, and again, all, all the algorithms are doing this market correction, right? So, mind you, it's the F and FANG. You know, you take one mm -hmm. big big thing down they they all move because of the um correlated no, algorithms where did it anyone check in to see tesla, tesla's up. they they all tesla's. tesla's up because it opened way up at the opening but it the, because it had uh, it exceeded expectations on sales yeah, yeah tesla was uh, going to get up because of all the product i mean the numbers they met yeah but, but Tesla went up on news last night, and so it opened. The pre-market yeah. made it go up, and then it's the chart has gone down since the market opened, but it opened above uh, due to pre-market because of that news. It's same, same, same with are it. up today, so you guys don't follow them because they're boring and they're 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 not you know eco-friendly and all of that. But Halliburton, Transocean, Williams Company. Um, Devon Energy, all, you know, all traditional, a lot of traditional energy companies are up, you know. So. Yeah, but that's because oil is going up. It's right. Okay. Up. So, yeah. Well, you also got food and Bev. Uh, those companies are, tend to be doing solid. And also, as a purchaser of cigarette companies, they're doing, you know, Altria solid. But then also the the market uh, dove from the opening, which was. What time is it now? Three hours ago. And it's been going sideways ever for the past hour, which so it's not related to the Facebook outage because the Facebook outage is only 40 minutes old. 
And so the market's been going sideways since the Facebook. It's everything. It's it's obviously Biden with the debt ceiling. It's the F and fangs of Facebook. It's it's a bigger yeah. question whether um, could be more hack attacks. And you see, this is the thing about technology. A lot of people forget, right? Tech is built on so much underlying infrastructure, whether it's networks or or um, DNS systems like uh, Chris was mentioning, right? And this is why I'm also skeptical about uh, Bitcoin. You know, there could be one day when Bitcoin literally doesn't have a value. It will go to no. Because no, that would, no that's not true. I'm just, I'm just saying it might happen one day. But whatever, that's that's completely different tangent. Okay. So um, Tyler, that's like a Skynet. The last time this happened was, you know, the same thing uh, from where I am right now in Turkey. The last time we had WhatsApp down as well as um, Instagram and Facebook, it happened maybe about a year ago, a year and a half ago. But what's interesting is that, you know, within 10 or 15 minutes, it came back up. And I remember because we're all trying to make phone calls and we had conference calls scheduled. But this one has been going on now for about maybe half an hour, 40 minutes. Yep. And, and Ned, and you're still down? Long. Neta, you're still I'm down? still down. I'm still down. Because you're because yeah. it says Turkey should be up, but that means the servers are down now too. Not so. yet. Not. I'm practicing my TikTok dance. Nothing else going on here. So some some headlines here that we need to run through. Charlotte-based payments processing and automation company files for an IPO. Who cares? That oh, we covered the TikTok revenue was up. Um, Middle Eastern e-commerce service called Noon.com raises two billion from Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. And Buju raises $300 million at a $18 billion valuation. And Grab raises its stake in Indonesian mobile wallet provider Ovo um, up to 90% of the company now from 39% previously. And... What else here? Do, do, do that's those are your big headlines at the moment. Yeah. So we can now get into the tweets. For example, from Heyman, Kanye West to step up into the world of technology files a trademark for Donda to be used for um, electronics and tablets and computers, audio speakers, etc. So we might see now that Kanye's done quite well in the fashion space. Consumer fashion, I guess. He might get into consumer tech. We could have a Dondrophone. What, what is that? <laughs> He's well, coming that the... up with your own technology well, so... company and phones and all those kind of stuff. Like yeah. the Will I Am brands? Yeah. <laughs> so, mm, Heyman also sends in this one that... Israel to launch global startup competition for desert technology solutions. Israel is spearheading an international competition for startups to develop and promote desert tech to battle de desertification, desertification and climate change. That's smart. Rhonda sends in this one from Yahoo Finance that Aurora and FedEx team up on driverless tech to address the trucker shortage. So you're going to have more of these autonomous truck companies are going huge. And FedEx, that's going to be amazing. Autonomous FedEx vehicles. But that's a whole lot of uh, people with jobs that won't have jobs in the near future. My goodness. By the way, I saw a video. It was by Vice. It was. It's actually a year old where they drive around and, and the journalist and the cameraman are inside a 
autonomous semi-truck driving down a highway somewhere in America. And the journalist is kind of stunned. It's making t- turns. It's doing all, all the things it needs to do. It goes on the highway. It, it even passes a slow driver on the highway. Someone else cut it off. No problem. No problems. Just no problems at all. And the journalist admittedly is wildly impressed. They pull the truck into a diner. And the CEO of the company and the journalist sit down at a diner. That's a truck stop for truckers. It's a diner for truckers. And so they start talking to truckers at the diner on camera about autonomous cars and autonomous trucks. Now, as as the journalist himself had just driven several miles in this autonomous truck, and now he's sitting with actual truckers talking about the future, uh, which will not involve them. And what they think about that and then took them out to see the truck and everything else. And it's 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 called Vice, the future of work. And automation, I think, was the name of it. And that's the whole it's like an hour long. But the first 15 minutes is just really, really good. I've not yet seen that kind of uh, humanitized um, aspect of like bringing together those two parties, uh, you know, to meet face to face and discuss the issue. And it's wild. It's really. But the truckers themselves said yeah you know we kind of knew this day would come (laughs) at first they were like nah it's never going to happen and then they show them the truck and then they're like yeah (laughs) they kind of turned their tune very quickly um really interesting to see that just really amazing capturing that you could do an entire documentary movie on all of the other jobs other than the truckers and bringing those people who are going to soon be replaced and put them directly in the, you know, face-to-face with the technology that's currently replacing them. And there's 30 different jobs you could do that with at the moment. So, uh, yeah, that could be a fantastic documentary. I would would pay good money to watch that. Um, The next one, kind of one, kind of related. Katerina, who often sends in fantastic tweets, sends this one in. It's a map. Um, I'm going to retweet it right now. So it's at the top of our Twitter feed. And it shows the migration and the Nobel Prize. More than one quarter of physicists, it talks about where Nobel Prize winners are originally from and where they have moved to. And the question is, which country are basically all the new the Nobel Prize uh, winners moving to. There's one country that they all move to. The U.S. Okay. Are you ready? Thailand. Denmark. Norway. 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 U.S. Honduras. America. Switzerland. Finland. New Zealand. Denmark. Of course, the U.S. Mexico. Oh shit! I already retweeted it, so it's not a fair competition. But uh, <laughs> ev- everybody who said America, give yourself a nice point and a little clap on the back. You did well there. And Messi, America. Messi, Messi got one wrong. Everybody, I don't know if you noticed what just happened there, but Messi, <laughs> he messed up. Messi messed up. Messi, are you happy about that? Guys? Is everything okay, Messi? <laughs> 
I didn't have my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Facebook was down. She couldn't get the answers. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So basically it shows a map of where all of the the migration of Nobel Prize winners, they originate in all kinds of interesting places, but they all end up in America for some reason. So it's quite interesting. All right, guys, I'm going there. Uh, my grandfather, he was a big white guy. Not that that matters. Uh, army guy. And when I got a really nice car in college, he said, for that kind of money, that thing better give you, um, you know, oral. And I think if you were able to make a truck do that, these uh, truckers would definitely jump on the autonomous truck truck train. Sorry for that. Totally inappropriate. Be thankful we don't have clips, Chris. <laughs> don't worry. Uh, anyone who can really uh, put me in, 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 in the doghouse already does every night. So. <laughs> Some of the effort. Okay, so next article here is from uh, David Crace, sends this one in from Bloomberg. The headline says, uh, for Tesla, Facebook, and others, AI's flaws are getting harder to ignore. Investors are pouring money into AI, despite clear setbacks in self-driving cars, social media, and even healthcare. Okay, and next one's from Poppy. And the headline says, how plastic waste affects global pollution. Plastic waste has been one of the biggest problems in our world today. The United States produces the most plastic waste in the world. And uh, it's a deep dive on this issue of plastic. I just tweeted that one out. And then I just realized I screwed up and did not put our live stream at the top of uh, the room. Hold on here while I fix this. Undo, unpin. Oh, no, Tyler, you messed up, too. Yes. <laughs> it's not just messy. No. <laughs> yeah, no. Just messy. <laughs> I have a friend now. I'm Mercury <laughs> retrograde. I'm okay. just jealous, messy. I've never even won a single Jeopardy. Facebook is down. Oh, my God. Okay, so I fixed it. So now the top tweet is our live stream. Uh, okay, so now back to the tweets. Amazon tells Tesla to hold its beer in contest for stupidest robot ever built is the headline from the next web who normally they're quite geeky and they're quite pro tech. Uh, and I guess they don't like the new Amazon um, little home robot. Jeff Bezos and Amazon have taken up the challenge thrown down by Elon Musk and Tesla who can build the stupidest consumer robot imaginable. Well, <laughs> let's see here. Who wrote this one? Did you? Uh, Tristan Green. I recall having strong words for Tristan previously. The article says, would you kindly install this surveillance equipment in your home so Amazon can monetize your existence, please and thank you. Amazon <laughs> held a hardware event yesterday to announce an all new lineup of data capturing tools it intends to market as robot assistance and security devices. Interestingly, the government, the general public seems to be enjoying the idea. Where Tesla was almost universally mocked for its silly robot announcement stunt, Amazon's latest reveals have been met with a lot of positivity. Apparently, people are really into the idea of letting a giant mega corporation fill their home with surveillance equipment. But there's more to worry 
about when it comes to in-home surveillance robots than just privacy. If you can stomach it, here's a pandering video of Astro Robot that everyone is calling cute and adorable on social media. The new Astro Robot. Um, and the new... Ring. No, they're not, Tyler. No one's calling it cute on social media. Yeah. Because social media is not even up. <laughs> the, the journalist says, the new Astro Robot and the new Ring Always Home camera are among the absolute stupidest consumer products I've ever seen, and that includes a direct comparison to the spandex-clad human pretending to be a robot at the Tesla uh, announcement. At least Elon Musk's idiotic idea for a robot is joke-worthy. There's absolutely nothing funny about the Amazon robots. Note, I want to believe I'm no hater. I want a robot in my house. I want a cool tech buddy. I promise I'm not just crapping on the concept. I just hate the execution. Amazon's robots are not your friends. They're data collecting tools designed to exploit you in any way they possibly can in order to gather more data. I won't even get into the privacy concerns. Security experts with decades of experience dealing with these kinds of threats have condemned Amazon's in-home surveillance gear as privacy nightmares for years. At least a dozen articles have been published in the past 24 hours uh, telling everyone these things are privacy nightmares. If you won't listen to those experts, you sure aren't going to listen to me. But let's forget the privacy problems for a second. Here's a few other reasons you should hold off on putting any sort of Amazon spyware device in your home, especially mobile robots. First, Amazon is intentionally insulting your intelligence. You absolutely don't need a robot to tell you if you left your stove on. If Amazon wanted to give people peace of mind, it would sell you a $10 sensor switch that can kill the gas feed to your smart stove. If gas is flowing for X amounts a second without proper combustion, no surveillance required. And you don't need a robot that can respond to glass breaking and alert you if something or someone is unlawfully entering your home because it's much, much less expensive to hire an alarm service, a company that specializes in such things. You can combine external cameras with entry point sensors to create a tried and true intrusion alert system. No strangers looking at 24-7 video feeds of the inside of your house required. This robot doesn't solve any problems whatsoever. Its only useful function is as an entertainment device. The first time your parents come over and you get to show off the handful of tricks it can do, everyone will be delighted. And as anyone who's owned a smart speaker for more than a month knows, that new tech euphoria wears off pretty quickly. Once you're no longer entranced by Astro or the Ring drone, you're stuck with an expensive reminder that you're personally subsidizing Amazon's AI research. Not only are you freely giving away you and your family's most intimate data, but you actually paid cash up front for the privilege. And, and lol, after a year, you'll have to pay a subscription fee. There, that's the dumbest, most scam-malicious consumer hardware experience I've ever seen. Charles Ponzi's ghost is freaking gobsmacked right now and off somewhere moaning about how he was born way too soon. And seriously, folks, have you seen the trailer? Amazon couldn't come up with a single useful depiction of its robot's abilities, so it just does a BB-8 impression through the whole video until finally at the end it, silen it silences a skeptic because it delivers them a beer. Get the fuck out of here. Who is, who the... So is he what? or is he Tell us how you really feel. The key is to make it cute. And then that, says, that was when it question. talks about security, like security surveillance, if you put security surveillance in your house, it's connected to Wi-Fi. Anybody can log into that anyway. So, you know, especially the company that installed it. It's not like data leaked from Amazon ring bells before. So what kind of time fold do you have? 
He says, bottom line, Amazon makes its money collecting and exploiting our data. It's worth a trillion dollars because of our data. The more data we give it, the richer it gets. We should not be paying for hardware, let alone a subscription fee to collect our data, especially when the robot is a little more useful than a Roomba with an Echo Show and a cup holder strapped to it. Oh, that, that last bit's pretty yes, much right Yes, that's on. what I said last time. How how better is it than the Roomba that just moves around? And <laughs> I was going to say, he's, he's writing as if he has privacy, like he thinks he has privacy all year round on everything else. Well, yeah, to- hey, this is just another device. It's, it is absolutely an IoT device, and I heard reviews on it on Friday. Um, it's out in beta now, and it, yes, absolutely going to be collecting data on you. But what are its intended uses? It, it's you know they were talking about, as you said, the security. If it's it's got facial recognition, so you're giving consent to that. Is everybody that knows your home? I guess you're giving consent on their behalf. But if it's you know unrecognized people come in, it can alert. Um, will it alert security? Possibly if it's tied into another security system. It just depends on what its uses are and what it's intended to do. And honestly, other uses that come to mind are a lot of the. Um, uh, pharma companies and all of those using robots to remind people to take their meds or these have also been shown to help elderly people who are uh, lonely. So it depends on the case. I mean, the, his, his, his point that it's expensive and that it is absolutely gathering data on you is true, but whether that can be used to your benefit is also a question. I mean, there's obviously the other side to everything you said. Tyler, what do you, do you know what just hit me? The thing is here that the disruption in WhatsApp communication together with Facebook, might it be that there's something going on somewhere that that needs to be disrupted in the form of a riot or something like that? That's, that's why they pulled the plug on it. How's the situation with Korea, China and over there? Ex- exactly what I was aiming yep. for without saying it. Oh, sorry. Okay. So the next one do we is... Have, do we have anyone from Taiwan in the room right now? Like uh, John? BB. BB? Okay. I mean, that's the other place to really watch, right? Taiwan and Hong Kong. Oh, BB's got her hand up. Here we go. Just in- Sorry, I may have missed it, but how much yeah, is the Amazon China, Astra? Like, they can use it originally, so don't worry about China. They don't have Facebook at all. You, it's I was going to say China doesn't have it. No, more more about like lack of reporting coming out of other places in the world that kind of people use Facebook as their way to get in touch with others in the world. If it's down, we can't really get this third party reporting is, I think, what someone was getting towards. Yeah, Yeah, especially the website. It's called that, what's the name of it? It's called the, uh, there's a website that you can report if it's down so that was a lot of reports in the past 30 minutes for on the twitter down, account down yeah, the facebook yeah facebook account on twitter and um, just tweeted that yeah it, it amended that the, the service now uh, the yeah. thing that i actually aim for is the whatsapp uh, whatsapp uh, application that's actually owned by facebook and is down as well and this has been known to be used by collaborators, use of funny term for it, uh, to plan and uh, do things in, in the shadows of this end-to-end encrypted thing. And the, the thing is here about, might it be that they killed WhatsApp and they did actually get Facebook and Instagram together with it as an innocent bystanders just because they shared the space, you want done. My friend's saying that there's some kind of Panama papers that came out, identified government officials, celebrities, and they're shutting down to prevent spread of information. That's one theory. And the, the website that you can check is 
called Dung Detector. The name is Dung Detector. Okay. Hmm. So shall we do the next one here is uh, Snopes has debunked the idea that um, Pfizer's, uh, what is this? The Pfizer has a new drug that is a, um, and then some people were claiming that it's just ivermectin dressed up by Pfizer. And that's been debunked. It's not. The the protease inhibitors are a class of antiviral drugs that have been used to treat um, other diseases, and they're not ivermectin. They're not, it's not the same thing as some people were thinking. So that's been debunked. And then the next article is blockchain-based system for real estate launches in India. And this is one of the best use cases for blockchain ever. And excited to see who will take it on first. And maybe it'll be India. And the Taliban denies presence of Chinese troops at Afghanistan's uh, airport. And what else? Apple and Disney among companies backing groups against U.S. climate bill. Amazon, Microsoft also supporting lobbying groups fighting legislation despite promises to combat climate crisis. Well, this is from The Guardian. And there could be other things in that bill that they disagree with other than the climate thing. It's... Then Facebook does not believe it's the primary cause of polarization, an executive tells CNN. A Facebook executive said in an interview on Sunday uh, with, with CNN that the company does not believe it, that... It, that the social service is the primary contributor to uh, polarization. And um, the New York Times is writing about the, the Aussie network, OZY. The story behind the story is about the elite investors who plowed millions into media dream without much due diligence, persuaded by the charm of Aussie's founder. And um, just a whole lot of, fraud happened in there this is, this is a big story so cal actually thought you're gonna do a deep dive on it when i he did his earlier room yeah i mean I, the aussie thing is a big story it's almost like the theranos for the media industry it's it's yeah. really big yeah and any can you say more oh yeah okay so basically ozzy ozzy is a company it's kind of like a lot of these new um you know um, social media things, a lot of them haven't done well financially, you know, Vice, and you can just go on and on. Um, and so Ozzy was something that was uh, a very um, uh, charismatic uh, leader, the guy the, the guy named after him, right? Um, and he was able to get all these celebrities together uh, from different fields, kind of like he, he viewed it as like, uh, um, uh, like, um, Coachella meets Ted, you know, type of thing, you know, and he, you know, and, but a lot of it was mostly fluff, but they got a massive valuation on it. And, and the whole thing came apart in the past week. Okay. What happened was they were trying to raise another round of financing. They were having a conference call with Goldman Sachs. There was always some dispute about exactly how good their YouTube numbers were, you know, whether, you know, you've got things that they paid for, or it's mostly just, you know, Aussies, you know, there was some concern about like exactly what their reach was. So they had um, Ozzy had their second in command 
basically um, impersonate uh, a, a YouTube executive. And so they're doing this conference call and somebody notices that this voice doesn't sound correct. Then right after they, 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 they kill the call and then they come out immediately and say, well, and they admitted to it that this guy basically was impersonating a YouTube guy. There was nobody on YouTube on the call. And it's all because, you know, he had a, a mental ma- breakdown type of thing, supposedly. Okay. Then about a day or two later, again, a guy named Mark Lazary, who's very well known in the hedge fund world, very big hedge fund guy, uh, who was the chairman of this company, um, you know, like non-executive chairman. Um, so he was there also for the, you know, the, the BV uh, optics. He comes out and makes an announcement I've almost never seen before. Well, um, you know, it looks like this company is moving to a point where the, the main skill level is going to need to be like investigations and stuff. And I'm not really suited for that. So he's leaving. And basically they announced that they, they, they closed the company, I think, last night or yesterday. So they, they're basically shutting down. All the employees are gone. And, and this thing just went from this huge thing to zero, like, you know, overnight. And it, and it but the, and, and they had like, if you actually go back and you'll find this a YouTube with Alex Rodriguez, the best the baseball player, for those of you who don't know baseball, one of the more famous baseball players of all time, uh, in uh, J-Lo's boyfriend or ex-boyfriend or something. I think the, she, she's the ex, she's back with Ben Affleck, but they were together, okay? But anyway, so Alex Rodriguez is a major figure and he, he had, like, basically was pitching Ozzy also, like, two years ago. And now he admits he got paid to do it. But if you look at the interview, the stuff that he was doing two years ago, he, he, they, they came up with this whole thing between him and Ozzy about, well, you know, we have this in common. We went to the same school or this and that. And, you know, and, and, and you know all of the same issues with Facebook. Are you doing it for the good of the world or are you doing it for something else? And now finally, at least Alex Rodriguez is admitting, I did it because they gave me a check, you know? So um, anyway, so that, that that's kind of uh, the story because it was it was supposed to be this new, great, big media play and it, and it basically disintegrated overnight. Which brings up the point that it's not that easy to create a, a news organization. One of the selling points that this guy had, I think, I forget his name, Watson, is it? Or, yeah, um, yeah, Watson, yeah. Watson. Yeah. He, he promised a sort of middle, you know, middle of the road, try to lower the temperature. He was, you know, he had a nice background, African-American from, from uh, graduating from Harvard, uh, worked at Goldman Sachs. And um, it shows that that the um, he, he was able to sell all these people in, in tech field um, on you know on on this new type of journalism supposedly that that he was uh, going to develop and so yeah he used he had to use a lot of smoke and mirrors because there was really nothing there and right out lied but the incredible thing is that these people who you would think were sort of like at the top of their field, all of these investment bankers or uh, tech people, um, uh, um, uh, Jobs Powell, um, Jobs' wife uh, was part of this. Uh, oh, yeah, she was a big him. initial investor, yeah. Right. So uh, they all got, you know, suckered into this. And and in fact, one of the people who, who was... Um, 
pushing for these companies to be advertising more in black media companies said this really hurt us because instead of them doing that they all sort of poured their money into this enterprise and it you know it it, it really was it didn't amount to anything so it just it became a mess all around and i don't think anyone wants to remember it after a few years that they were part of this so Watson's out right now, by the way, like an hour ago, saying that the uh, Ozzy's not closing down. But, you know, I think that may just be him saying it. I don't know who's going to believe him. But, I mean, because I, I, I don't know I don't know if they're the employees who are reporting to work anymore. So Whatever you say, OnlyFans, we believe you. <laughs> it's uh, another unfortunate, like you said, the Theranos case. And, yeah, uh, unfortunate. But it's like you can't be doing. And there, did you mention the Ozzy Oz with the Ozfest trademark issue? Well, they're they're related, by the way. You know that, right? What do you mean? Ozzy Fest was 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 from Ozzy Media, right? No, what I mean is, so they had this event called Ozzy Fest. Uh, Ozzy Osbourne has a thing called Ozfest, and it's had it for quite a while. So. Ozzy Osbourne's wife, Sharon, is like uh, Sharon completely. Yeah, she went. She went. That she went really bad on him. Right. So she said, "You know, you can't do that." And so they settled. And and then the guy from Ozzy Media, who you know has, you know, this kind of has a little bit of a problem with um, being perfectly straight said on tv on like a really popular like morning tv show oh yeah so ozzy osborne and cheryl you know originally they sued us and then we've settled and now they're investors and he said it as if like because we're so good because they came around and saw the light of day and realized that we're so fantastic that uh so hence you know you should not have any questions either uh, so they they checked us out and they went from suing us to being investors, and then Sh- Sharon Osborne, uh, you know, came out and said, "No, that's not what happened. We're not investors." And she called him the biggest <clears throat> shyster she's ever known. Right. So, ouch! Just ouch, ouch, ouch. And then he defended himself today by saying, "Well, in the settlement, we gave them shares in the company." So you know, they're investors because you have shares in the company. And that's, well. And speaking of the Aussie Fest, if I, if I'm, and I, I may get this wrong because I don't want to get something wrong because all the uh, stuff with you know, people you know, getting things wrong. So I might be off by this, but um, I know there's a story, something around this. I'm not sure which year it was on one of the Aussie Fest to um, market it. They were using phony photographs. They were trying to save, you know, they were using, they wanted to say, we're going to do it on the, uh, the, the uh, what's it called? The main lawn, the big lawn. I should know this because I'm, I'm from New York at Central Park. Um, and, um, but they were not using photos from their own festival. They were using fo- photos from Global Citizen and making it look like this is like, you know, what Ozzy Fest is going to be or Ozzy Fest, Ozzy Fest was the year before. Um, you know, so, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's just, what are you doing? And especially when you've got multiple um, 
you know, simultaneous, just, if you have one of those, people will forgive you, but when you get, you know, we just named three or four, it's just, it becomes toxic. This is, they, they were going to shut down and declare bankruptcy, and now they're not. I just saw that they were not declaring that's what, bankruptcy. That's what, that's what the CEO is saying, but he might be the only employee left, so, you know, who knows, you know. That guy doesn't sound uh, like have, if you ever heard him like uh, like clips of him he he doesn't he doesn't always sound like his mental stability is his primary focus. I watched an interview with him right before we opened this room and he seems very intelligent but uh, I think he's very smooth. Yeah, I agree with you, Tyler. I think the guy's very smooth. That's how he was able to sell this. Yeah. There's... And um yeah. I don't What's know. He's got this he's got this piece going on about this being his Lazarus moment and stuff. I I don't know. I mean I whatever. No, I, I heard the clip that I heard that's, that's the interview I saw. Yeah, the clip that I heard uh of him, which was a a while ago, it's not recent, um, was a little off, right? But I don't watch regular clips of him. I don't know ordinarily he sounds great and you know, all you know, everything together. I just watched one. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. But um, Ozzy was growing, you know, well, I thought, but I guess they had too much turnover and other, a lot of stuff happened and went wrong. But, um, but well, it uh, wasn't growing well, but there's a point that there was issues with the metrics and they got caught, I think, with bad metrics. And this, this call with Goldman Sachs, what would happen, they were trying to verify some of the YouTube metrics. And they yeah, the fake get... YouTube thing? Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> totally Trumpy, right? <laughs> This is an instance of where uh, I know we've been critical of the New York Times, not all of us, but, you know, and we should be, uh, which is a good sign because they they always get attacked from the left and the right. So everyone's attacking them. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't agree with everything that they do, but, you know, I think they're a great uh, institution. Uh, but it was Ben Smith and other reporters there who really broke this story and sort of exposed it. And it really saved a lot of further grief for all these other, uh, all these people who were investing, who had already put so much money into it, and also the, the people who were working there who were really true journalists. And this guy, Watson, was just sort of the, the ringmaster. And so that's an instance of a, a public service to, to a lot of uh, people. So, you know, you take the bad with the good and you have to really sort of weigh it. It's unfortunate. So uh, other headlines here from Dr. Fran from CNBC. Amazon rolls out early Black Friday deals to jumpstart holiday shopping. Amazon said it's offering deep discounts across every category, including fashion, electronics, home goods, and toys. It's a little early, isn't it? That's the day after Thanksgiving. We're talking two months from now. Wow. There's going to be no inventory. That's the issue. There's going to be no inventory, guys. I wonder if they'll encourage you. Yeah, to I don't. Th I, I don't think it's that early. I think that they've been doing. They've been pushing like pre-Halloween Christmas sales for several years now. Hmm. Come on, this is America. Two months ahead of Black Friday. Come on. Yeah, yeah I, they did it last year also. I, I'm telling you, I think it's like the last two years that it's been. Like this. Too long time. She, she's right. It, it, it's not new. They, they've been doing this, yeah. Okay, next up. Um, 
Next one is from Poppy from BBC News. The King of Jordan secretly spent more than $100 million on property empire in the UK and US, including, uh, I believe, in Malibu. Leaked financial documents identify a network of secretly owned firms used by the King of Jordan to buy 15 homes since he assumed power in 1999, 20 years ago. Not bad. Do we got a location on that place in Malibu? I don't have anything going on this afternoon. <laughs> um, I, I have the documents if you need. Okay. All right, I'll take a drive. Next one. Also from Bibi from South China Morning Post. Uh, Chinese AI has new ethical guidelines that curb big tech algorithms. China released its first set of guidelines on AI ethics as the country seeks to become the industry leader while cracking down on the influence of big tech. And one of the essentially the, the big new policy changes, any AIs must be opt outable by the user, which that's going to be wild to see how that happens. And uh, BB sends in this one also from South China Morning Post that China to bar overseas transfer of core industrial telecoms data. New regulation drafted by the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology seeks to bar the transfer of crucial industrial and telecoms data outside China. And that, if you know the history uh, of China, uh, this is incredibly ironic. And they are supremely um, familiar with the value of importing and exporting technology they like to import import it they don't like to they but they're banning the exporting of it just like money if you earn the money in china it's really hard to get it out of china just like money yeah um crypto miners are being blamed for a power supply deficit in kazakhstan government moles restrictions so kazakhstan's facing electronic electricity shortages and cryptocurrency mining has been singled out as the main culprit. Amid an ongoing crackdown in China, the Central Asian nation has become a magnet for crypto miners who are taking advantage of its low electricity rates. Ah, that's the problem. So the miners, some of them went to Kazakhstan because many of them were in Inner Mongolia, so it's not that far, honestly. It makes sense, if, especially if they knew it was going to get shut down in China. Uh, and winter is coming. Winter in Kazakhstan is about as cold as it can get. Yeah. And Todd McLeese sends in this one from the Wall Street Journal. It says, robots take over Italy's vineyards as wineries struggle with COVID-19 workers shortages. Italian winemakers have increasingly relied on migrant workers for the autumn harvest, but COVID-19 travel restrictions are, and soaring wages... Costs are pushing robots and automation. Jeez, have we read this article every day for the past few months, or is it just me? Here it comes. Here it comes. The automation revolution. Get the, well, if you think about farm, farming in general, right? When the tractor came out, how how did that change farming completely? People that was my to... that was my study in university. <laughs> I'm I'm a little too familiar with that topic. Uh, it's called the Luddites. They attacked the machines. Um, what about 
yeah. Is anyone interested in selling pitchforks? <laughs> There's going to be a lot of money I've made. I've been saying it for a long time. The pitchforks are coming very soon, folks. We just got to be very aware of it. Machine sabotage. And perhaps this Facebook outage might somehow be related to big tech sabotage. We will see. It, seem, it would seems very oh, that's interesting. Really peculiar. So next up is you forgot the conspiracy music though well i i just got a dm by somebody claiming to potentially have done this i'm just gonna leave that right there that deserves music chris, chris what did you do chris now it's nobody who's in the room at the moment i, I was just browsing instagram and then a bunch of asian models <laughs> I'll just Tyler, just climate tell, activist. Tyler, just tell us off the record. We won't tell anyone. Uh, well, they just... You, did you, <laughs> Tyler, by don't the way, say anything. Did you just hear a ding? Because uh, they just sent me yes. a follow-up message. And I, without revealing the person... No, this, this new message is not related. Yeah. Could it be climate activists? Not in, Not in this case. Not the... Not the one I'm referring to. Okay. Did you tweet a first name? <laughs> Bengaluru Startup offers three-day work week. And sorry, Damolair um, is down in the audience. He has something to add. Okay, sorry. perfect. So a, Bengalair, a Bengaluru Startup is offering a three-day work week to attract tech talent. What's up, Damolair? Break it down for us. So we've got uh, Demler. Are you there? I invited you up. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm here. I'm here. Okay. No, it wasn't on Discord, but already. Well, um, that brings us back to the top of the hour. I have to something urgent to attend to, so we're gonna pause. We have a room coming up next. Oh, that's right. In three it. minutes. So who's doing that one? Uh, Alexandra, Jennifer. Oh, right. All about myself. NFTs. Perfect. Can yes, you, can, use cases, yeah, perfect. security, and legal aspects of NFTs. Can, you, can you pop that one open for us so we can jump in there? There you go. So we'll jump into the NFT basics room to learn all about the use cases, security, and legalities of NFTs. It should be fun. I hope you join us. And thank you. And it's now open. So we'll see you over there. And thank you for joining us for another... Tech news around the world. Thanks, Tyler. All right, everybody. Thank, Thank you, Tyler. See you next time. Thank you, All right. Thanks, Tyler.